0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast with me Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around I spoke to Greg Ashman. Greg is a maths and science teacher, originally from the UK, but now based in sunny Australia. He's a prolific and influential blogger, and is also working towards his PhD in cognitive load theory. Now, if you enjoyed the educational research aspects of my interview with Dylan William, and the memory discussion I had with Will Emney, then you're in for an absolute treat we dig deep into cognitive load theory and in particular its implication for explicit instruction versus more inquiry or discovery based learning in the classroom and i'm going to say from the outset and i'm going to discuss this more in my takeaway at the end of the show reading greg's work in preparation for this interview and the research he cites has really changed the way i approach my own teaching 12 years into my career so in a wide ranging interview we covered the following things and more How does Greg plan series of lessons, and what would a typical lesson look like? Why is Greg such a big fan of joint planning within his department, with an emphasis on refinement, and how do new ideas break through in this model? Why does Greg believe behaviour management is not something you are born with, but something that can be learned like any other skill? And then the big one. We dive deep into cognitive load theory, where Greg gives us a lovely summary of the theory, looking at the role of working and long-term memory, the process of chunking, and the dangers of means-end problems. We then look at some key cognitive load theory effects, including the worked example effect, the redundancy effect, and the expert retrieval effect, each time asking what are the implications for the classroom. And I'll tell you what, the redundancy effect in particular has huge consequences for how we present information to students. I then quiz Greg about implications for exam preparation, especially how to help students answer those tricky five mark questions that call upon a lot of different skills. And then, surely, if students discover something, they'll remember it better, right? Well, not according to Greg, and he has an anecdote about beer to try and convince me. What about the role of puzzles, real-life maths, and the story structure of three-act math lessons? We get into all that. And then finally, Greg has some excellent book recommendations and a wonderful Big Three selection. So, if like me, you're interested in educational research, no matter how much you've looked into it, I really believe you'll find this discussion of great interest. I've tried as much as possible to tease out the practical implications for the classroom, and that is the great advantage of having Greg as a guest. He is a working maths teacher who puts the ideas he reads into practice every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Much like my interview with Dylan William, I genu- genuinely sorry, believe the content of this interview is not just pertinent to maths teachers, but to teachers of any subject. And if you have time to give us a cheeky review on iTunes, and by cheeky, ideally I mean good, then I'd be absolutely delighted. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce you to Greg Ashman. I really hope you enjoy this interview, and as ever, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, Greg so we'll kick off as we always do on the podcast with your math speed dating questions so question number one what is your favorite number and why? Uh, Three times ten to the
1: eight because (laughs) I'm a physicist and that's the speed of light and that's just
0: fascinating. Flipping it three times ten to the eight and can you remember when you first discovered that one?
1: Um, well, it must have been at school, um, but we didn't really do relativity um, at school, but I'm sure that the, the teachers mentioned it. The fact that it doesn't change, no matter how you measure it, so three times ten to the eight metres per second, doesn't matter what frame of reference you're in, it
0: doesn't change. So that's uh, it's just pretty amazing. Blows your mind. Flipping. it, that's, that's an excellent answer. I like that. Uh, well, question number two. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Definitely calculus because of the power of it. So what you could do with it,
1: the problems you could solve with it. Um, Obviously, as a physicist, I apply my maths and I really appreciated um, the way that you could apply calculus. And then I learned that Newton, I think I've got this right, um, once he'd invented calculus, he then had to prove everything geometrically in his principia because he realized no one else knew calculus so
0: he invented <laughs> he invented the shortcut and then had to do it the long way. it heck nice and again can you remember the first moment or, or the first kind of concept in calculus that, that really grabbed you?
1: Oh well it would have been uh, differentiate I can't remember being taught differentiation from first principles I'm sure I must have been but I can't remember it but I just remember it uh, you know to solve problems and and, and being able to differentiate an, an expression for um displacement and find velocity and things
0: like that I just thought it was wonderful nice fantastic and uh, my final question from the speed data round is what would you like to do if you weren't a teacher um well i don't know what
1: i'd like to do but there was a, a, a serious risk of me being a chemical engineer cuz <laughs> every uh, every university uh, that i put on my ucas form i put down chemical engineering but uh, at Cambridge you couldn't do that you had to either do engineering or natural sciences so I put down natural sciences and then you know got to university and fell in love with physics and,
0: and that was that really so perhaps I would have been a chemical engineer who knows. Nice <laughs> fantastic well you, you've kind of touched upon it there uh, some of you you kind of love of science and stuff so I'm fascinated about how you got to where you are now because obviously you're you're a, are you a maths teacher or a maths and do you still teach a bit of science at all Greg? Um, I I teach year 12 physics and I teach year 12 maths. Got it, fantastic. So year
1: 12's our
0: our year 13. Yes, oh yeah, of course, because we've we've got to cover that big one as well, that you're on the other side of the world at the moment. So I wonder if if you could take us through then your steps to to getting where you are in your career now, Greg, if that's all right.
1: Okay, so I was in my lectures in, in the third year and someone stood up and said, does anyone want to go to Uganda to teach? So I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, i'd applied to do teaching um as a back uh, as a backup i thought that if i was a teacher i'd never be unemployed so that that was my thinking at the time but i went to uganda uh, taught a bit of physics no training at all uh, taught a bit of maths fell in love with it thought it was great thought it was the best thing ever so when i came back having survived a, a dose of cerebral malaria and um, when i came back Jeez. i decided um that this backup plan was actually plan a so i went to the Institute of Education uh, in London, um, and I lived for a year, well, nine months, whatever it was, in their Hall of Residence, John Adams Hall, so that was great in London, um, fell in love, uh, partied, all that sort of stuff, fell in love with London itself, decided that that's where I wanted to be, I got quite into clubbing, I would say (laughs) very into clubbing, but that's not quite right, that conjures up the wrong image, but I loved uh, loved the clubbing, so I thought I've got to live in London. So I, uh, I got a job at one of my placement schools, um, Hayden in Northwest London. I uh, worked there for about two and a half years as a science teacher. Then I moved to Brentside in West London, which uh, at the time was known as a school facing challenging circumstances. And it certainly was. I went there as second in science. And seven years later, I was assistant head um, and the school had turned around almost completely. The results had improved. There was a new head teacher um Arrol Jones who I owe a lot to I learned a lot from him um and that was a that was a really positive experience working there it was rebuilt on the PFI we did a lot of good work there then I went to be deputy head teacher at another school in London Viner's but um while I was there we decided uh, to make a change my wife is Australian so she's from a, a town called Ballarat um at the time we were living in Watford in a little uh, terraced house uh, with the assistance of the government to buy that actually and even as a deputy head i couldn't see myself being able to afford to buy anywhere else in london really so um, we could have moved up north my sister lives in yorkshire and i'm from the midlands but i've always loved the north but with uh, joe being um, from ballarat uh, we decided to move to australia so came to australia um, i apply sent my cv into every school in ballarat and geelong which are two sort of neighboring towns and um, the government school system here is a little bit parochial, so I didn't actually get much interest from government schools. But um, I did get uh, offered a job at uh, the school that I am at now, which is an independent school. And it's just an amazing place. It, I got there and they said, oh, we're in- interested in, in research uh, and they really mean it. So in my office on my bookshelf, I've, I've got more education books than I've seen in, in in any other school, uh, in the whole school, you know, and it's led by um a couple of people, a, a principal and a vice principal who are really quite uh, interesting people. They're intelligent, they're sharp, they keep you on their toes, on your toes. Um, it's it, it's a really um, great place to be, and I've got um colleagues who uh, are smart and. By that, I mean they're prepared to learn and read and think, because and, that's how you get smart. And I've developed this real interest in um, research. So my school has supported me in that. I'm doing a PhD part-time, uh, investigating cognitive load theory. And really, that's where I am today. So that's a
0: bit of a, a whistle-stop tour through my career. That is fantastic. Oh, Perfect okay Greg so I wonder if we can move on now to, to the whole process of uh, planning and delivery because this is this is one thing i'm I'm absolutely fascinated about and especially somebody who's really into educational research I, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by your your planning process so I wonder if you could pick a topic it can be any topic you like maybe something you've taught recently or you're about to t- teach. And just talk us through the, the process from when you first realize what you, you're going to teach to the actual delivery of the lesson, going into as much detail as you like. And I, I'll be a, as annoying as I usually am and uh, just interrupt every now and again. So, yeah, whenever you're ready, just talk us through it, if that's OK. And if you could tell us the topic and the class that you, you, would, in, you would teach it to.
1: OK, so I'm, let's take year 12 probability because I've been teaching that recently. Um, what... My view of of planning um, is that it's got to be more of a ratchet than a wheel. So you don't want to be starting with a blank sheet of paper if you can help it. You want to actually build on things that are already there. And then in a semi-empirical, quasi-experimental way, um, refine what you've got as you go along. So draw some inferences, say... Uh, this worked and this didn't work, but not because of the feels, you know, oh, this worked because I feel it did, but like have some evidence that you can point to and say, well, actually on this question we didn't do particularly well or on this question we did better and then we refine it on that basis. So uh, with probability, um, I'd start initially with some previous materials that we have in the department on probability um, and I would look to refine those. Um I'm not anti-textbooks, um, so I would use textbook resources. I don't see the point in creating lots of uh, resources. That that doesn't seem like an efficient use of time. If the resources you can get from a textbook are um, good resources, they're worthwhile resources and they do the job for you. I know a lot of textbooks don't do that and a lot of textbooks are poor, but if you've got the right textbook, um, it can support your planning a lot. Um, the starting point is to think where do I want the students to be? Um, If you're teaching Year 12, which uh, is obviously our final year and there's an exam at the end of that year, um, you can look at exam questions, and I do, um, and I look at the sort of things that students need to be able to do in those questions. But, of course, you can't just train kids to answer questions. There are principles in there that you need to draw out and you need to make sure that the students have understood those principles. Um, And so that's how you start structuring... Um, basically the the knowledge um, and skills that you need the students to build to to work their way towards those objectives. So you have to identify a set of objectives that you want them to uh, work work towards and then you start to think about, well, how are you going to support them to that? So I'd go to um, my old probability materials and I'd say, well, I'd audit them against those objectives. I'd say, are they going to help the kids progress towards those objectives? Can I refine them in any way? Um, Then um, I'd start structuring um, the unit um, of work, so I'd plan out roughly a timeline for how I think um, we're going to progress through the unit of work, and then from that I would go to the individual lessons. Now, uh, my individual lessons have a very um, definite structure. So the students will enter the classroom, there's a a box on the board, um, and I tell them uh, that they need to write in that box the numbers of any homework questions that they've had difficulty with. So they come in, <clears throat> a few students will write some questions up, they'll sit down, then they'll complete a, a starter activity which could be uh, related to last lesson's work. Uh, it could be um, a spaced, um, an uh, item of space practice. So it could be something from a few weeks ago that I just want to get them to retrieve and, and remember and, and think about again. It could be something that relates to what we're doing this lesson, but is prior knowledge. So um, by doing that um, starter activity, I've primed them for the new stuff
0: that we're going to do this lesson. And can you just give us um, sorry to interrupt, Greg, Could you give us, uh, us an example of what one of those starter activities might involve?
1: Well, it would just be a question. Um, it's nothing flash. I don't do uh, I don't do you know sort of card sorts or anything like that. <laughs> it would just simply be a question. So with probability, it might be a very simple probability question, for instance, you know, um, different colored balls in a bag and you're pulling one out. What's the probability and and that sort of thing? Because then we might build on that in the lesson to do something, say, on the binomial theorem or something uh, along those lines. So they would just be questions. They're they're not... um, all singing, dancing things, or or interactive, this, that, or the other. They're they're just maths questions, really.
0: Got, got it. So, and and again, um, just just to dig deep on this, are the kids? Um, how how are they answering those? Are they expected to do it in silence? Can they talk to each other and check? And and then how do you actually go through the answer to that? If you don't mind me asking. Um,
1: well, I wouldn't expect them to do it in silence, but they. Uh, I expect them to be business like. Um, so what I always say is, is if it's noisy in the classroom then some students won't be able to concentrate because some people can't concentrate in a noisy environment. I don't believe anyone can, really, but some students will tell me that they can. So I just say some students can't. (laughs) Um, And so we need it to be a level of volume where everyone can work. But I don't insist on silence for a a starter activity. It's not a test or anything. It's more um, supposed to be triggering ideas and and making connections and things like that. Um, So... But also, while they're doing that, while they're doing the starter activity, I always check the homework. Yes. So um, every lesson they get set homework. So I will go around very briefly. I'm only checking that it's done. I won't um, check the quality of it or anything like that. Well, I'll I'll check that it. I will check the quality of it. Like I don't want it really scrappy or just answers or something like that. Um, But I I won't look into issues with it at that point. All I'm doing is checking that it's complete um while they're doing the starter activity
0: and i'm taking um, it and i'm taking it because these are essentially what our kind of year 13s would be is it the kind of homework where they've already got the answers in the back of the book yes. and stuff? they've already marked yes. it themselves essentially is that right oh
1: yeah and so i insist that i see that they've checked yes. all the answers yes got it. um i don't see the point really in assessing homework because you uh never know what conditions it was done under they they could have collaborated they could have had help from it a parent or, or anything so i don't think you get very reliable assessments if you try and grade it or anything like that so i'm really looking for it to be completed um and then so we'll do the starter activity i'll then tee up the lesson i'll say what what our uh, learning intentions are what we're trying to learn that that day um then i'll set the homework um because i find that if I said it at the start of the lesson, I always remember to say. <laughs> yeah, well, nice, um, nice, So, uh, yeah, I don't like this. That halfway out the room, and you're going, oh, oh, yes, uh, no. <laughs> the homework. No, that's not good. So I said it at the start, and then I say, "Were well, there any problems with last night's homework?" And um, after a while, when the kids start to trust me, uh, they'll be quite free in writing those questions up on the board in the box, and I'm quite happy sometimes if we spend quite a lot of time going over that. Um, rather than, I'm not rushing to get into the new material. No. Uh, if we really need to go over these issues with the homework, we need to go over them. I'll make a judgment. Sometimes it's only two or three students who need that, so I might um, say, well, hang, wait a bit later on in the lesson when everyone's working, I'll go over this with you. But often, if two or three students have had a, pro- a, a problem in the question, um, even if the other students have got it right, they might have got it right, but only kind of not half knowing why yes. what they did worked. And so it's often a useful way of triggering a, another explanation. And what I also believe um, is that it, it forces me to deal with things that I wouldn't otherwise deal with. So teachers suffer from this thing called the curse of knowledge. So when we know something, it's very hard to imagine someone not knowing it. So you teach something and you say, does everyone understand? And all the students sort of nod their heads because they're um, suffering from an equivalent cognitive bias called the Dunning-Kruger effect where they don't have enough knowledge to realize that they don't understand. <laughs> so they all nod their heads and you think, great, they all understand it, so let's move on. And, of course, they don't understand it and they you haven't explained it well enough and they haven't quite grasped it. But unless you create these opportunities that sort of really force you to address the fact that the kids haven't understood something, you can quite easily just bumble along and, um, you know, convince yourself that everything's fine, that you explain it beautifully and they almost understand. So by doing this homework check and this exercise where they write the questions up at the start of the lesson, I'm, I'm always disappointed that they've struggled with a particular question because I always think I explained it perfectly <laughs> well and they should have understood yeah. it. But it forces me to address that, and it's kind of, it shakes me out of my own uh, cognitive bias. So th- I think that's a really important structure. And in a way, you know you read all this stuff about flipped classrooms yes. and, and things like that. Um, I'm not a fan, but in a sense, that's a, it's a bit like that. It, 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 it forces you to address um, the, the, the issues as they arise rather than um, just carrying on, plowing on with uh, the next – bit of material
0: that's i mean so, it's, it's fascinating that greg and i wonder if i could just ask is that something you'd employ with younger students or does this require the absolutely kind of, do, it, it's not a maturity thing is it not it doesn't no. require the older students to say look i've struggled on this question and, uh, and i would like some help going through with it this still works with the younger ones i haven't taught
1: primary school uh, and i think you would need different strategies yes. there but certainly every age group i've taught so i've taught year six maths um, so that would be uh, year seven um, in the UK, um, all, all the way up. Um, I would use that strategy, and if students students won't necessarily take to it straight away, yes, um, but you, you kind of you, you get them used to it, you build the trust. Uh, it might be slightly different if, if a different year group has got a worksheet, you might go around and check and maybe identify a few questions that they've had trouble with and talk about those rather than get them to write them at the front in a box or something. But essentially the same principle
0: would apply. Got it. And again, just to dig a tiny bit deeper, is it, does this method rely on the fact that the kids have the answers so know where they've struggled? And if that's the case, would you always give answers to homeworks? Would the kids always have the answers with them when they're doing the homework? <laughs>
1: uh pretty much um i'd 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 need to i need to see the argument not to yes. i think with maths if you insist that they show their workings then they can't just copy down the answer and be done with it of course they can always copy someone else's workings you you can't solve that problem yes. very easily but you, they could you could do that whether it was whether they had the answers or not so um yeah i would be fairly relaxed about that i i'd need someone to convince me that that was an issue
0: Got it. Fantastic. So, OK, so we're at the point in the lesson now we've we've let's assume that we've addressed any issues that came up in the homework. We've gone through those. Well, what happens next, Greg? Uh, well, next I do a bit of teaching. So um, here's
1: some new stuff, folks. Uh, this is these are some key principles. I I don't tend to. Uh, so I use um, this sounds awful and I always have to convince people of this. I use PowerPoint and yes. I know a lot of people are very anti powerpoint because they imagine that you're sitting there doing lots of animations and clip art and stuff like that there's very little of that going on in my powerpoints so they're just really um it, again it's this idea of a, of a ratchet over a wheel so i can take a powerpoint that i left off with last year yes. and then i can work on it and improve it for next year r- rather than just having to write everything up on the board and things like that i can tweak it i can add little reminders so one thing that I do is if I think there's any danger that I might forget to do something, um, I'll put a little blue box on the PowerPoint slide and then the kids will remind me to do it because it flashes up and they see it. Ah, so nice. So I use it um, in all sorts of uh, ways like that. So, um, so I have my slides, but I won't read out the slides. Um, uh, I'll get kids to read the slide and then I'll talk about it. Um, there's u- not usually a huge amount of that sort of... Exposition. It might be defining things or say you're doing set theory. What does R mean? What's R plus? What's R minus? There might be something like that. But fairly soon we'll get into some worked examples. So I will uh, model answering a question. Um, So by modeling it, I don't mean I'll just provide them a model. I won't just sort of show them um, an answer to how to do it. I'll actually go through, I'll do a think aloud. I'll talk through what you would do to solve this problem. Ideally, um, I will design it so that there is a uh, a, a problem next to it, which is almost identical, but maybe the numbers are slightly different or the context slightly different. So they've got to follow the um, approach in the worked example to solve their problem. And sometimes they're on the same slide parallel. So on the left-hand side is the worked example. On the right-hand side is the problem that they've got to solve. Sometimes that doesn't quite work because it won't quite fit on. So I'll do a worked example, and then um, the next thing, they'll do one. One of the things I've introduced fairly recently, I used to rattle through a number of different examples. So there's this, and then this might change, and then you might vary this, and, oh, Mm -hmm. they might ask you this. And then I'd ask them to do some questions. But, of course, by the time you've done your fourth example um they've forgotten all about the first yes. one yes so um it doesn't really work very well so and i read a bit of research on it as part of my um phd stuff uh, where um the researchers with who looked into the worked example effect they did this thing um called example example problem pairs which is exactly that you have a worked example on the left hand side and you have to solve a problem on the right hand side that is essentially um identical uh, structurally identical so that's the main teaching episode really can i just and...
0: ask can i just ask quickly about that greg what when you're going through these worked examples is it a case that you're modeling it as if you alone were answering the question and talking through your thought process or are you involving the kids and actually asking oh, them no. questions
1: i i involve them all the time so um this is not a a one-way university lecture anything that the kids can do so if as part of this new kind of problem we've got to add two fractions together i'll ask a student to add the two fractions together i won't do that well sometimes i might if, if if we're in a bit of a rush and it's not that critical but generally i will um ask students to do the bits that the students should be able to already do um and then i will write their answer up so it, that, that serves two purposes really um One is uh, it enables me to assess what their state of knowledge is, but also the fact that they might be called on at any point to contribute, um, I think, means that they pay attention and don't sort of wander off and start looking through the window or
0: something like that. It's it's interesting, and this is something that uh, perhaps we might dig in a little bit deeper later on in the interview, but... And um, often certainly quite big in the UK over the last couple of years has been the concept of a, a walking, talking mock, which is essentially for, for listeners who don't know, it would be, say, 100, 100 students sat in a room, maybe year 11s, and it would be a teacher at the front essentially doing a GCSE paper, talking through and and commentating on exactly what their thought processes would be if they were students sitting and doing that particular exam. And the idea is students would be annotating their own papers, sat in silence, kind of working through it. And they would get to witness an expert kind of answering answering the question with with the theory being that they will learn from how they think, how they approach questions and so on. now, what, what what's your view on that, Greg? Because you're doing something subtly different here, right? Because you are involving the students. And I just wonder, what happens if you ask a question out there? Like, what, what would we do next and so on? And the answer you get back isn't exactly how you would approach it. And maybe there's a couple of mistakes in there. Does that derail the thing that you're trying to get across? The fact that you're trying to model a, a, essentially a perfect approach to the question? I don't know if that makes sense or not.
1: No, I, I understand the question. No, um, I'll reframe it. If it's a small uh, variation on what I would have said, so if they've said essentially what I want to say, but in a slightly yes. idiosyncratic way, I'll, I'll simply rephrase it. If they've got it wrong, I might go to another student um, who might then give me the right answer, and then I'll go back to the original student and say, do you agree? Or I'd make sure that I involve them in uh, in getting the right answer in some some way um in terms of the walking talking mark i'm not sure about that idea to be honest i'm not seen it so i don't know but the your big risk there is that the kids that you really want to target the kids who are struggling the most are going to switch off and not pay yes. attention to this um modeling ac- activity so um unless you are throwing questions out to Uh, the students and forcing them to engage to a certain extent I'm not sure that's going to be hugely successful the kids who already know a lot and have a sense of self-efficacy and self-concept as mathematicians will think yeah I'm going to get a lot from this and they'll perk up and they'll
0: listen so
1: again you'll you'll sort of have a differential effect I would have thought
0: that's interesting so for, for you it's the questioning and ensuring the kids are active in this process it is the key to this modeling as well as obviously your good explanations um,
1: well, um, my explanations
0: are not always good. Um,
1: <laughs> no, the, it, it's, I wouldn't use the term active because people take from that that the kids have to be behavior, behaviorally yes. active, doing something. Um, I'm not sure about that. They, they have to have minds on. Um, and by asking questions, the, the the possibility of being asked a question means that the students that sit sitting there and yes. hasn't been asked a question has their mind on the task they might not be asked a question but they're paying attention now to me that's cognitive activity but i'm not sure um that that's what most people think of
0: when you say oh you know the students have to be active yes no i think you're absolutely right um and can i ask as well um again this this may be a kind of pointless question but when you're choosing your, the kids to ask these questions to do, what's your technique there do you, do you always have kids in mind or do you, are you randomly selecting them how, how do you ensure that um to, to keep the kids kind of turned on and engaged that they're all anticipating being asked the question
1: I don't use a randomizer, uh, I, I probably could be a bit more systematic. Sometimes there are questions that I will target to specific students. Um, if I know a student has struggled with something, say, in a previous activity, I might um, target them to answer a particular question that's related to that to see if they've made any progress. Um, but I do try and get around all of them. If I start to, it, it's a bit of a, there's a little bit of self policing here. If I think that a, I've started to uh, get a, a bit um, non symmetrical yeah. in how I'm asking my questions, um, that I'll go through a, a few lessons where I just tick off people's names on a ah, class yes. list as I ask them a question. But um, I don't often do that because um, I think I've got into quite a good, uh, doing that a few times, and I would advise, uh, new teachers to to do that activity but if you do that a few times i think you start to build an understanding of what it looks like when you're talking to everyone in the room but i'm sure some observer could come and see me and say well actually you didn't talk to such and such at all and you talked to this person five times I, that's always possible but um i i don't have I, I don't have a really systematic way of doing that
0: but i, I think it goes okay Got it. Fantastic. So we've we're at the stage of the lesson now. We've we've uh, let's let's assume that we've got a worked example that you've modelled on the left and, and a similar related problem on on the right that the kids have attempted. What what happens next, Greg? And in particular, how how do you judge that the kids have, have understood um, the, the concepts you wanted to get across in that worked example? Um,
1: well, I'll ask them questions. Um, they'll do some activities. I'll, I'll then so they'll do a bit of independent work towards yes. the end of the lesson, and I'll circulate. Um, part of it is the feedback. Next lesson on the homework, but also uh, I assess them quite regularly. So um, three or four weeks after the the concepts taught, I might give them a question to do. I'll take that up. Or well, actually, I if they if they're year twelves, I usually get them to self-assess it, so they get a bit of immediate feedback on their own answer, but then I'll take it up and I'll have a look at the strengths and weaknesses. And we're talking here, of course, as if I'm uh, teaching in a school of one, but any (laughs) um, area in which I teach, I'm in a team of teachers. So what's really useful to me is if we do a question um, and so we don't do, I'm not talking about massive long tests here. I'm talking like a question, an exam question, but we'll do it across the classes. And then we'll have a look and we'll see that in my class, the average is 0.2 out of 2. And in my uh, colleague's class, it's 1.4 out of 2. And I'll say, well, wait a bit. We're using the same plan here. So what have you done? What have you said? Um, and he'll say, oh, well, actually, um, Joe blogs in my class asked the question and then we ended up having a bit of a discussion about blah, blah, blah. So then blah, blah, blah goes into the next iteration of the lesson plan so that all
0: the classes get it. Got it. And does, does that suggest that um, is, is joint planning quite a, a big part of your department, or does it just go to the level? Absolutely. Of, oh, okay. So it's not just the fact that we. Do you have kind of um, the same homeworks and stuff across all similar yeah, sets, every- and, and the same same lessons, same PowerPoint?
1: Uh, pretty much. It, it we do have um, what in the uk is called setting at some of our year levels and the lesson varies slightly then although the backbone is still the same um uh, with years 11 and 12 the vc years it's their um options that the students take so um you you, you get within the kids that take the option you get a mix of ability so yes. all the groups um are are effectively the same um so yeah they get the same um lesson plans and what that means is that um my teachers aren't up late at night planning lessons from scratch that someone else has already planned because that's a waste of their time um they're spending their time and they're working very hard um writing assessments um improving materials that are already there adding extension questions to lesson plans and things like that again it's this idea that we improve on what's already there we don't start with a
0: blank sheet of paper and just to play kind of devil's advocate a little bit here, what happens if you've got a teacher who wants to do something completely different? Is, is that an option? Would they need to kind of justify... Oh, they've just
1: got they've, to show why that would be better. Yeah. And if they can, we, we would do it. And um, by,
0: by showing them, by convincing you it would be better, could they go off and kind of try the lesson and then come back and say, look, this happened, this happened. I think we should adopt this as a general approach. What would you want to see? Um,
1: you could... we, we could do that uh sometimes we would do that uh, like an experimental approach but it wouldn't be oh the lesson went really well the kids are really engaged it would have to be some something more concrete than that we'd have to see an effect in a, an assessment activity or or somewhere that showed that this class had a superior understanding of the concept because of the lesson um we're often you know courses change things move in um, what, one of the things that we have at my place is we're on a slightly moving playing field because um, our um, maths um, scores um, at the uh, lower year groups keep, have, have increased quite a lot over the last few years. So, things that we didn't used to teach in particular year groups, we bring in. So, whenever we bring in uh, a new topic, a new idea, then there is scope for creativity in how we would do it. When people join us, they often come with different ideas um that we can incorporate but the the point is if you've got an idea if you've got an idea about how to do this that's better than what we're doing at the moment i don't want you to go off and just do that in your class i want that to somehow feed into the work of the whole team because if it's such a good idea i want everyone yes to be doing it you get this stuff from teachers sometimes that say oh yes well um my class is different and, and i have to be able to plan Uh, my activities to suit the particular learners in the room but actually the way that kids learn has they have a lot more in common than they have differences and an activity that works really well with one class is likely more likely than not to work really well with another class so if you're saying to me well for my particular learners i need to do a completely different activity i need to teach them in a completely different way well fine but i'm going to ask you on what basis are you making that decision how how do you know how do you know that this will work better um what's your evidence um and if people can explain that if they can point to research evidence or if they can say well actually we did this in a different year group and the kids learnt more and we can demonstrate it then we'll take it on board it's not meant to shut down a discussion it's just really meant to focus the discussion on the evidence and if everyone goes away and does their own thing you have this problem again where people stop sharing people stop collaborating everyone sits down every night with a blank sheet of paper and has to
0: plan their lessons from scratch and that's just not efficient and can I ask as well, Greg, just because this concept of joint joint planning fascinates me, because I think, so I've seen it done well, but I've seen it done really poorly where, and by poorly, I mean, it's, it's often a compromise. It's often like a, almost like a trading agreement, where if you've got two people joint planning lesson, one says, well, I want to do this at the start. And the other person says, well, if you're doing it at the start, I'm going to do this at the end. And and in the end, no, nobody's kind of happy about it. So I wonder, just in a practical sense, how are these lessons put together? Is it a case of, people working in pairs or does somebody kind of take take ownership of one particular lesson do some work on it and then share it with the department how and when does this joint planning happen so
1: what we do look the thing is um in a sense it doesn't matter because after a few iterations everyone's stuff is in there anyway right but how we would initially do it is we would sit down as a team we would map out the unit the objectives of the unit come up with a bit of a timeline. Uh, And then one person would go and design the lessons um, because you're right. uh, You don't want it to be a bit of a dog's breakfast. Um, (laughs) You see, if people are saying, I want to do this at the start and I want to do this at the end. Well, again, I would ask the question, on what basis are you making those decisions? Um, There's got to be a basis for that. Um, So one person would probably design each lesson. But the point is that quickly washes out these lessons quickly stop being the property of the person who initially wrote it yes. because after we've had a few meetings we've looked at some assessment evidence we've added some few things in someone else takes over the unit uh for the, the following year and they add a few things in and change things it rapidly becomes everyone's um property really uh, rather than being able to say well this is actually the work of this
0: person over here got it fantastic and this I, I know I'm kind of going on about the same point here but just just I'm, I'm just to play devils i've got one more time on this if you have a, a new teacher joins your school so they don't have any um they don't have any kind of prior experience um, uh, of, of other classes. Um, and they have an idea to themselves, and maybe um, maybe it's a, an original idea. Maybe they've they've seen it on a Tes website or something, and they think right, okay, I, I really want to try this with my class, but I don't have any I don't have any evidence to fall back upon that I think I, I know that this has worked with previous year groups or anything like that. How how does how does that new idea kind of work its way in into this system, if that makes sense?
1: Uh, Well, it wouldn't necessarily. Um, They'd have to convince the cohort that it was a good thing to do. So all the other teachers teaching the same unit. And look, this is not um, no no one is pretending that there is research evidence for every decision that we make in the classroom. Uh, These these are often, you know, 51, 49 calls. And sometimes people will say, well, actually, the way we do this at the moment isn't great uh let's just roll the dice and try this ah, new activity yes. you seem quite passionate about it we'll give that a go and, and sometimes we add things in and we think oh, i'm not sure that that's going great like we, we we introduced um the area model for um factorizing quadratics and it was a great move when we did it and we did it in year nine and ten um uh, but we now we're a bit concerned about the fact that some of our year 12s are still relying on it and taking ages to factorize quadratic so we're trying to rethink that so at that point when we've got an issue we might think well how else could we do it um and but we'll probably have people in a room this is what we spend our meeting time doing yes you wouldn't necessarily send someone off to to just do what they like we try and get a, a commitment an agreement and you can't do that with everything um you know i'm not pretending that you can But that's the ideal way that we would we would deal with those sorts of issues. But if we've got a really good instructional sequence, which we know works and which we know the kids uh, gain a lot of conceptual understanding from, then I would be loath to then just throw that out and
0: do something different. Got it. This this is fascinating, this Greg. This is this is this is brilliant. This and uh, the last question I wanted to ask on this this uh, your kind of planning process. How does your lesson end? Is there any kind of definite ending there? Is do you always like to do a plenary, exit ticket, um, like some kind of diagnostic question or something like that? Well, do you have a set way of ending your lessons?
1: No, not really. Uh, the kids will do some independent work. Sometimes I'll summarise things. Sometimes. Um, But no, I mean, I used to do a lot of – I remember under the old national strategies in the U.K., um, you had the three-part lesson, and you had to do a starter and a main activity and a plenary. And the plenary, no one ever really got right or thought (laughs) about. And it was always a bit of a a waste of time. I've done uh, Dylan William exit passes. I think they're great. I would use them from time to time. But um, every lesson, you'd start to generate – too much information to process really if you do that all the time um so i think if you've got a worthwhile plenary uh it's worth doing but um i i don't see the point in going through the motions of having a plenary every lesson for the sake of having a plenary every lesson
0: got it and and what i be right in saying that if you were judging whether your lesson has been successful does that judgment only happen the following lesson when when you get to see how the kids have responded to the homework or do, does it go even further that you can only judge it three weeks down the line whenever you've interleaved or whatever you want to call it um, a, a kind of question to test their understanding from from three weeks ago
1: yeah so that would be distributed practice um rather than interleaving but i wouldn't look I would never come out of a lesson and say, oh, that was a really successful lesson. Yes. Um, I used to do that, um, but I, then I used to think I could observe lessons. And, and I think you can observe a lesson and tell if something's going badly wrong. If, if the kids aren't doing what the teacher's asked, um, if they're talking over the teacher, uh, things like that. You can, you, can fairly, you can see fairly quickly if the wheels have come off. But if a lesson looks good... I don't think there's. you can say, well, it was really excellent, they learnt loads, or, or it was a bit mediocre. I don't think you can make that judgment call. The only way you can really determine that is um, through some kind of assessment evidence. Now, that doesn't have to be a test. Uh, it doesn't have to be a formal exam. It can be a question, um, but uh, it, it can even be the, the feedback that the kids give you with the homework, that they all struggled with <laughs> the homework, so yes. wait a bit, that couldn't have been very effective. Or it might just be that it's a really hard concept. All of these things, you know, um, are quite complex and they feed into quite a complex picture. But certainly I don't think you can say, oh, yeah, that was a su-. when I was a training as a teacher, you know, you had to every, after every lesson, you had to write an evaluation. Oh, yes, that was a really successful lesson because. Of that. <laughs> but apart from, you know, it was a successful lesson because, you know, no one threw anything at me or <laughs> something like that. I, I don't think you can really make those judgments. And I think we fool ourselves when we think that we can.
0: And can can I ask on that, because uh, a classic way, and I'm going to completely hold my hands up here. Um, So I'm in my 12th year of teaching now. When, When I first started teaching... Um, and this was quite a way into my career. A classic approach for me would be and i I should have saying this, but i 'm going to say it anyway um, I would ask a question at the start of the lesson a, a difficult question, and the kids would struggle at it then we'd do we teach the lesson we 'd do some activities blah 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 and then then, at the end of the lesson, I would ask either the same question or a related one that I did at the start. The kids will get it right. And I would feel very happy with myself because the kids have made progress. And there's my evidence for it in the lesson. Um, now, feel free to kind of tear this apart. And I, I kind of do myself. But do you do you need them to get something right independently at home away from the lesson to to so that there's some kind of time distance in there to, to separate kind of memory and mimicry from actually being, being able to to answer questions, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't use homework as evidence, though, because, as I said, uh, you don't know the conditions under which it was done. And I certainly wouldn't try and assess it within a lesson. Um, I mean, I think that's reasonable. If you've got two approaches and you're doing an experiment, um, then you can see if there's a difference between the two approaches within that short time period. But what we're really interested in as teachers is, is the long term. So I'd be more interested in when we do um a later distributed question or when we do a revision test or or a test or something assessment um i'd be looking to see whether that had been retained and then it's quite hard it's easy actually it's quite hard to say well i don't think I, i think this lesson was successful and i think that's because lessons are the wrong um size of analysis really we shouldn't be looking at lessons and saying whether the lessons were successful when we look at um, an assessment say a math assessment and we say well um some students did well on this question in this class and and some students in another class didn't do so well we're actually highlighting a particular episode in a lesson yes um and a what an explanation or a activity or a sequence of um ex- explanations or, or or something like that that's what we're evaluating we're not evaluating a a whole lesson uh we're inva- evaluating a part of a lesson and the part of the lesson where we taught that concept i i think if you can't relate your assessment evidence back to something that you've taught then i think that makes it really quite hard to draw any inferences from it because what you're supposed to do that if, if you're expecting kids to think pick up things implicitly um and you're not going to teach it um and then you find out that they haven't learned it well how how do you connect those things up? So I think what you do is um, you, you're trying to link the assessment to the to particular instructional episodes, and then you can make inferences. But I'm I'm just not I am not sort of thinking was this lesson successful? Was that lesson less successful? It's just not the the the, the item size of analysis that I would use.
0: Got it. And I guess the natural follow up question to that is. Um, I'm assuming in your role that you're asked to observe teachers and um, fellow teachers in your maths department, or, or at least observations happen within your school. And what's your take on them then, Greg, if, if you can't judge an individual lesson, certainly not what you're actually within that lesson, how successful it's been. What are you, what are you looking for when you observe teachers? To, to well, judge? if I,
1: if I observe a teacher, I'm just looking that the wheels are on. Um, the, right. the, 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 that's all. Like So it, I think it's very lesson observation is very very good for telling you whether certain basic things are in place. If you've made an agreement that all the teachers are going to check homework at the start of the lesson, yes. and you go into a lesson and the teacher doesn't check the homework at the start of the lesson, then that's pretty fundamental. If kids are talking over the teacher and the teacher is trying to talk to the class, uh, or a kid is talking to the class, giving an answer, and other kids are just not listening and talking to each other, I think that's pretty fundamental. If, if a teacher says, right, I want you to a- answer this question and two-thirds of the class pick up the pens and answer the question, and others that don't, I think that's pretty fundamental. So you can you can tell if those things are in place, um, but I don't think you can tell. This idea, this Ofsted idea, of um, until quite recently, that you could somehow go into a lesson and figure out whether it was merely good or, or <laughs> actually excellent uh, is obviously wrong. I believed it, so I'm not saying... I'm saying it's obviously wrong slightly ironically, because I believed it for a while when I worked in the uk but the the research is is quite clear on that and actually if you sit down and think about it um it is a bit of an absurd idea um but it didn't occur to any of us at the time Uh, so but yeah it's observation is good for telling whether the wheels are falling off or not
0: fantastic OK, Greg, so this is often my favourite uh, part of the show and, and sometimes the guest's least favourite. But I wonder if you could um, think back in your teaching career, it could be something relatively recent, to a lesson that didn't quite go as well as you'd, you'd hoped it had gone. And crucially, if, if you don't mind talking us through uh, that lesson, um, but most importantly, what why didn't it go as you intended and, and what did you learn from it?
1: Well, I'm going to talk about a sequence of lessons, and this sequence of lessons took place uh, in my first year of teaching as an NQT. At the time, uh, I had two Year 11 uh, science classes. Um, <clears throat> one was, a, uh, in, the, uh, in the phrasing of the time, a top set, and the other uh, was on the other half of the year, and it was a bottom set. Um, and my bottom set um, were um, challenging behaviourally. And they didn't take me seriously. I used to wear uh, a a suit, a three-piece suit with a waistcoat, and they used to accuse me of being a snooker player and all this (laughs) sort of stuff. It's quite funny, really. Uh, But they do things like, uh, there was a a student in the class, and I'd ask him to sit down, and he would uh, basically sort of climb all the way through his stool and eventually sit down. And you'd say, you know, you'd have a go at him, and he'd say, well, yeah, I did what you wanted, and I sat down. (laughs) So, and they would... um, do this the whole time they were sort of compliant so you couldn't pin anything on them yes uh, but they would um they'd drive me nuts and I would uh, be quite stressed about teaching this class and I would talk to my colleagues and they would often advise um which I now think is probably the wrong advice they would uh, advise me to do things that would jolly them along so nice. um give them poster work to do because they'll they'll spend ages doing the bubble <laughs> writing and you know they weren't going to learn much science that way though and I kind of knew there was something wrong here I felt there was something wrong here and I felt that if only um, they would let me um, I could actually be a much more effective teacher at the time uh, the school introduced a program I don't know if you've ever heard of it it's a very American thing called assertive discipline and it it went out of fashion years back and but at the time the school thought that this this was this was an approach And um, I have to say, I thought it was brilliant. There were bits about it that made me cringe. Um, You know, you you had these videos with uh, trainers saying, and you've got to say to the kid, good job. (laughs) And uh, you can imagine a whole group of teachers in London groaning. But uh, the advice they gave, I've since done a bit of research on this, because classroom management is a bit of an interest of mine, because I I was not a natural, um, and... I think it's one of these things, despite all we read about growth mindset and the fact that, you know, you work at things, it's not about natural talent. I think we still assume that running a room is something that some people can do and naturally have and that other people can't. Yet I learned it, and I learned it because I was trained in a number of techniques. Now, that sounds awful. It sounds manipulative. It sounds unnatural. But my relationships with kids, when I started to use these techniques... And when they started to become automatic, so I wasn't thinking about using them anymore, but I still was. My relationships with kids became a lot better. Well, we introduced this assertive discipline and the deputy head, bless him, said, if there's anyone that's having trouble applying this, let me know. (laughs) So I tried to apply it with my bumps at year 11 class and uh, I was having trouble applying it. So he came, and I never forget this because he uh, he crept in the back of the room through the prep room because you can <laughs> yeah. in a science lab. So all the kids were misbehaving, uh, but they didn't realise he was there. He was standing behind them, and I, I just remember he took this this kid, the kid who used to climb through the uh, stool, and he um, he, he really uh, told him how things were, and this kid was quite shocked, and um, it was that kind of display of not supporting the teacher over the kid or anything like that but just saying look we have um established a set of uh, practices here that we uh, a set of rules and expectations that we want um students and teachers to um use and abide by and uh, we're actually going to insist on them we're not just going to say it and then walk away yes. and pretend everything's fixed we're actually going to insist on it and, and the way we're going to insist on it is that the deputy head is going to come and creep into the back of the lesson, and check that people are following this this uh, plan. And I thought that was incredibly powerful, and I felt really supported as a teacher. Not, as I say, that, you know, uh, my side had been taken in, or, or anything like that, but just the fact that as an, as a group, as a community, we decided this is how we wanted things to be. And after that, and, and things didn't sort of change immediately, of sure. course they didn't, um, But um, I started to develop. I took on a few of the techniques that we've been learning through this program. The kids took it a bit more seriously, took me a bit more seriously. And from then, I became a much more effective teacher so that when I moved to my second school, the one that was facing challenging circumstances that I told you about earlier, where there wasn't that structure initially, where there wasn't that kind of support initially, I could do those things myself independently. I could use their strategies and I could see some success with them. And I think that um, these strategies uh, of uh, positive reinforcement and lots of different things that, that we learned at the time they're they're not systematically taught i, I don't think i could be wrong here. they're not systematically taught to um pgc pgc students and, and trainee teachers and i think that that's a shame because i think there's a there's a lot in there and i think that part of it is because the research uh, comes from behaviorism and behaviorism yes has uh, got a very bad name and is very bad and you shouldn't be behaving <laughs> very bad. Um, but but there's a lot in there. And interestingly, it's, quite, it's positive. It's one of the techniques that I picked up really quickly and I've just found it so powerful ever since. You've got three rows, say, in your science lab or whatever it is. And the back row aren't doing what you've asked them to do. They're not writing the title or whatever yeah. it is you've asked them to do. And the front row are. Every teacher will say to the kids on the back row, start writing the title now, how many times have I asked you? <laughs> don't do that. Say, it's excellent everyone on the front row is doing what I've asked. Most of the time, most of the kids on the back row will then pick up their pens and start yes. doing what you want them to do. If one or two don't, you've got few kids to talk to. Yes. But also, um, you're pointing out to the class that kids are doing what you want. Yes. You're not pointing out to the class that there are kids who aren't doing what you want. So... It, it makes the whole environment more positive to move forward. And it's just simple little classroom management strategies like that. I wouldn't call that praise because a lot of people then say, oh, well, that's praising kids for things that you'd expect them to do anyway. That's not praise. That's, praise is about um, performance. This is about positive reinforcement. And it's very well validated um, in a lot of this, um, you know, behaviorist research. But we just don't seem
0: to systematically teach teachers about this stuff. I think I think you're spot on there, Greg. And I think like it, it's it's widely discussed that um, investment into teachers' CPD in terms of subject knowledge and, and pedagogy and so on is 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 severely kind of restricted. But you you, you don't get much mention of of the similar thing when it comes to behavior management or or classroom approaches and and so on and yeah i I think you're absolutely right there is an assumption that you're either good at it or you're not good at it so i'm I'm wondering if and this this may be something um that you can't think of off top of your head but um if, if you kind of practiced and and got good at this and you mentioned a couple of techniques there is there any way you'd advise teachers who are in a similar position who perhaps don't have that support and where they could go is there anything that you found particularly useful a a reference or whether it's a book or, or something like that that would would just shed light onto some of these practices for for teachers and just help them along the way when it comes to behavior
1: um there's a thing it's not perfect but i have in the past given teachers something called the class i think it's called the classroom management pocket book um i forget the author um i could look that up for the website afterwards if if you're interested it 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 contains a few little tips um but there's nothing really comprehensive that i'm aware of on on this topic
0: yeah it's 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 a real shame but you've certainly found have you that it was And then this is, if if anything, I'm asking this just to give some hope because I certainly struggled in my early years. Similarly, it is something that you can you believe that you can work on just like anything. And if you practice in the right way, you can get better when it comes to behavior management. It's like everything else.
1: Um, I'm surprised that we don't think that it is, but it is. I'm actually writing a a book at the moment um, for new teachers and um, I'm going to write a chapter. Well, I've actually already drafted it on uh classroom management because i do think it is so important um so you know if if people can wait
0: (laughs) that will exist that sounds great that sounds perfect uh well greg it's the main reason i wanted to to get you on the show just to give people a bit a bit of background here is and i'm going to completely hold my hands up here I wasn't aware of, of your blog until i interviewed Dylan william in it and he put it as one of his one of his big three and since then i've become a, a bit of an, an obsessive of it and in preparation for this uh, this interview i'd say i've done more revision than i did for from all, all my a levels combined so i'm a little bit nervous about where this is where this is going to go here and obviously i'm going to link to you to your blog so um, people can people can read it in the show notes but as a kind of general theme for what I want to talk about and this may well take us till the end of the episode and um, it's what i'm kind of loosely terming as uh, as kind of direct instruction versus and um, the constructivist approach or or probably in 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 more kind of common language direct instruction versus teaching through projects and inquiries and so on and that hopefully is going to encompass something I know you're very passionate about and you've mentioned it a cognitive load theory and I want to dig deeper into into all the arguments for and against and bring in real life maths and investigations and all that kind of stuff but I wonder if we could start Greg just you, you've mentioned um, earlier on in this interview that um, research and evidence is is very important to you, and you, you're always looking for t- teachers to justify what why they want to do things. And I just wonder where did where did that that feeling or that need need come from? Because did was it there at the very start of your career, or did was it just something you stumbled upon a little bit later on? Um,
1: so I believed a lot of stuff, which I no longer believe because I was told these things as if they were true and so I assumed that they were true so I believed that um it was better for kids to learn through doing investigations than through um being told um it never sat well with me and I always felt guilty I was I was the guilty teacher who explained things to kids and then felt like I shouldn't have done yes um and I think there's probably a lot of people like that walking around It was really interesting. Uh, It was revelatory. When I went to my current school and I've said, um, what a kind of oasis of um, enlightenment without sort of bigging it up too much. It it is the fact that I picked up, and it's a book that I'm not um, that that passionate about, but um, John Hattie's Visible Learning, and I picked it up. And here was someone saying, well, actually... Um, explaining things to kids, direct instruction can be effective. And there's research evidence to uh, suggest that. And I thought, really? Well, how come I don't know about this? How come no one's ever told me this? What's, what's going on here? And uh, through the references in Hattie, I found this paper by Kirsch Sweller Clark called Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Doesn't Work about the Failure of Various Approaches, Constructivist Approaches and query Learning Approaches. And I read this and I thought, wow, like, How come I didn't know this argument? I didn't think there was a debate here. But here we have some eminent psychologists, uh, instructional designers arguing that um, kids need a lot of guidance. They need uh, things explained to them. They need explicit instruction. And this was revelatory because I'd kind of, through folk knowledge, worked out that explaining things to kids was more effective than trying to get them to work it out for themselves. But uh, as I say, there was a lot of guilt around that, and yes. I felt that I must be doing it wrong. If my um, inquiry activities are not leading to this deep understanding, then I must be doing something wrong. But here were people saying, well, no, actually, in principle, this probably won't work very well. So it's a bit like learning that, you know, Santa Claus doesn't exist or something. <laughs> it's, it's one of those moments. And, of course, now I'm doing my PhD under uh, John Sweller, one of the authors of that paper, and Slava Kalyuga, who's um, known for the expertise reversal effect. So I found that um, really interesting, and that was really the start of my uh, journey on on this cognitive load theory and everything else. You would get into trouble with your introduction because (laughs) you talked about constructivist um, approaches, And whenever you get into this, um, whenever I try and write about this, uh, you have these endless discussions where people want to define terms or redefine terms. Constructivism actually is a theory of learning. And if it's true, um, it's true whether kids learn by watching a lecture or investigating something themselves. Essentially, constructivism, although there are different variations of it, and I won't go into that, means that you uh, learn things by um, relating them to things that you already know and organising them in schemas and, and things like that. It's a particular group of um, researchers and teachers who have then taken that and suggested it implies particular teaching techniques. Um, but then there are other people who say, well, no, it doesn't at all. It's just a theory of learning, and that's Hattie's line. He said, well, constructivism is just a theory of learning. It doesn't actually have any implications to how we should teach. So. There's all that that you have to navigate your way through. But people definitely do, because I've met them, um, uh, advocate particular teaching methods, often investigative work, inquiry work, um, open-ended work, on the basis of whatever their understanding is of constructivism. And constructivism really um, is essentially a latter-day cognitive science spin on what we might call early 20th century Progressive education, learning by doing, that sort of thing. Um, so it's got quite a long history, and there's quite a lot of of tradition there. I think that the big problem with, and this is the argument that um, is made in the uh, paper, the "Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Doesn't Work" paper, is that um, we have a very limited um, working memory. So our working memory is the things that we are conscious of. So. Your brain is processing all sorts of things at any one time, but there are only certain things that you're conscious of. And that's very limited. So the classic example is uh, from Miller's paper, the magic number, is it magic number seven plus or minus two? I hope I've got the numbers right. They're embarrassing if I <laughs> Um not And but his idea is, so imagine I wanted uh, you to remember um, seven, uh, sorry, uh, five, letters five digits or five five numbers or something for a period of time you've got to hold those five digits in your uh, working memory so say it's xqbrd yes so yes. you're gonna have to keep saying to yourself xqbrd xqbr so you've got five items holding to hold you in yep. your um working memory you can just about do that but say if it's 12 um you can't and that's because that indicates a limit on your working memory, on the things that you can process in your working memory. Sweller would go a bit further and say, well, that's just holding items in your working memory. As soon as you start trying to process them, they interact in some way. Well, that's also going to take up working memory space. So the number of items you can process when you take into account their interactions is actually less. What um, what can we do about this? Well, the, the, the great news, the good news, is uh, this process called chunking, where... We can automatise things and we can do those things then in our long-term memory. So uh, when you drive to work, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you drive to work and you get to work and you think, I don't remember that. I don't <laughs> remember how I did that. Because you've done it all on autopilot. You've done it all automatically. You've done it so many times that you didn't have to think about it. Well, that's a real boost. That's a real bonus. So if you don't have to work out uh, six eight, um, you just know the answer, then the, that bit of the maths problem that you're trying to solve you don't have to process in working memory uh, you can just retrieve the answer from your long-term memory because you just know it your long-term memory can do it for you and so you can co- you can get over these constraints of working memory by storing more and more um automatizing more and more uh, so storing more and more facts in long-term memory automizing more and more routines and procedures in the long-term memory and then you've only got to pay attention to a few things so The classic example I would see um, in maths uh, of this phenomena, and I'm pretty sure that this is an example of it, you ask students to solve two simultaneous equations. So um, they've got to solve for X and Y. You've got two simultaneous equations. They go through the problem. They write X equals 3. They stop, they move on to the next problem. And we all say, oh, you've made a silly mistake, because that's what we call it. You've mm-hmm. made a silly mistake. You there, you've made a silly mistake. You forgot to go back and put Y in. They haven't made a silly mistake. The, the reason they forgot to put Y in is Y has dropped out of their working memory. Their working memory is so full of solving the simultaneous equations that the space that needed to remember to solve for Y isn't there. So solve for Y, that bit's dropped out the working memory so that's why we don't do it at the end so it's not a silly mistake at all what it's indicating is that the process of solving these two simultaneous equations has filled up the working memory and there's none left over and so the way around that of course is to try and automize the process of solving simultaneous equations because if you can do it um, more drawing on your long-term memory more automatically more subconsciously then you can be paying attention to all these other aspects of the question to uh, solving for why or You know, um, we do a lot of questions uh, where uh, you've got two simultaneous equations and they've got literal terms like A in the simultaneous equations. And for what value of A will there be no solutions? So the students uh, do their little technique. They compare the gradients or whatever. They find two values of A, zero and three. But one of them will give you infinite solutions and one of them will give you no solutions but they forget that bit that's dropped off because they've been so involved in comparing the gradients and all that sort of stuff so the the strategy for overcoming these working memory limits is is automatizing these procedures and the problem with uh inquiry based learning discovery based learning those sorts of things is that they very very rapidly fill up the working memory with stuff so uh, Sweller did a really interesting experiment back in the day, back in the early 80s, before he'd even thought of cognitive load theory. And he had a group of students in a lecture hall. And he said, what I want you to do is I'm going to give you two numbers. I'm going to give you a starting number and an end number. You have to get from the starting number to the end number. But the only things you can do, the only two moves you can make are to multiply by three or, and, or add 29. Right so it's it's a bit random this but bear with it so they have to go so they and they all start solving these problems and they all get the problems right because they're they're pretty smart and they can do this but what swell has done every single problem can be solved by simply alternating the two so you never add 29 and add 29 it's always multiply by three add 29 multiply by three add 29 multiply by three add 29 so it's just different lengths of that chain yes to get from the start to the end Virtually no students discover this principle. So they're all doing it, they're all solving it by alternating multiply by 3 add 29, multiply by 3 add 29, but none of them notice the principle, none of them notice that that's what they're doing to solve the problem. Um, why is this? Well, because the brain has got so um, involved in the process of what's called means ends analysis. So my end is I've got to get to this number. My means are the certain moves that I can make to get to that number. So I'm going to get tot- – my attention is going to get totally absorbed yes. in going from the th- – and I, so I don't discover any key principles. And this is the key flaw with any kind of investigative learning, um, any kind of problem-based learning, any kind of discovery learning. You get so you, – your mind gets – your attention gets filled up with the process of doing that you don't infer any of the principles that you're supposed to be inferring. The classic example for me as a a science teacher is running science practicals. So, you run this science practical because you want to teach the principle that um, the larger the surface area, the greater the reaction rate. That's the key principle. So, we're going to do a a practical to teach the kids so that they sort of see that this this principle in action. So, that's what we're going to do. We're really excited. We're all pumped. We'll give each other high fives into the prep room. We run into our labs. (laughs) And the kids are all like, right, where are the marble chips? Uh, where do I get the yes. Where do I get the clamp stand from? How did and oh what? This isn't the right temperature. Where, where's the, How do I work out the temperature? And that's what their minds are full of. That's what they're thinking about. So of course I'm not I'm not arguing against not doing practicals. Don't get me me wrong. I think that um, it's absolutely essential that kids have the experience of conducting practicals. I think that they need to be constrained in some way. So they're very very clear instructions. And I also think that either before or after, you have to explain to them what they were supposed to have seen happen in the practical because their mind is going to be on the actual doing. Of course, if you're a professional scientist, if you're a PhD student, and you've done the same kind of experiment 50 times because you're working in a very narrow field and all the experiments look quite similar, the where do I find the marble chips question goes. And you can actually focus on the results and what's happening and, and what it means. But um, for the kid in, in the science lab, they, they can't do that. And so this is why um, this cognitive load theory gives us an explanation for what's going on here. And what sits beneath this as well? Now, we have to be careful here. So cognitive load theory now has taken on this explanatory um sort of underpinning from a guy called Geary. Now, Geary is an evolutionary psychologist. And Geary has come up with this idea that there are uh, two kinds of things that we learn. Uh, One is biologically primary, and one is biologically secondary. Biologically primary things are things that we've evolved to learn. So things like learning to speak, because presumably we've, we've been doing it for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. So evolution has had time to work on it, And so essentially we've got in our brain a little module which is predisposed to learn um, how to speak. And and we've got little modules for learning what Geary calls folk psychology, so working other people out and what their intentions are, and folk physics, which is like sort of working out what objects tend to do. Um, And so we pick these things up very um, quickly, very readily. They're not um, subject to the same uh, working memory constraints. But the things that we learn in school um, are biologically secondary. They're, they're not things that we've evolved to learn. So writing's only been around for a few thousand years. So we couldn't possibly have evolved a module for learning, reading and writing because we just it just hasn't been around long enough. Yes. So that's why learning to read and write is effortful in comparison to learning to speak. Some people, of course, can pick up reading implicitly. We know this. But we also know that to maximise the chances of the most uh, kids learning to read, uh, you're better with um, explicit instruction. Now, the point is though, Geary's theory doesn't mean it doesn't tell you it, it doesn't provide evidence that explicit instruction is better to better than inquiry learning. It doesn't do that um, because you still if you if that's you if that's what you think. Uh, then you're still going to have to do experiments to, to figure out which forms of instruction are more effective. more effective. It doesn't imply that, because it could be that the best way to learn these biologically secondary things is through doing investigations. It could be that that could be true. What Geary's uh, idea um, allows us to do is to understand why it might be different, why, why it won't necessarily be the case that the best way uh, of learning to read um is the same as the best way of learning to um uh speak so we learn to speak by immersion so a lot of people think well therefore surely the best way of learning to read would be by immersion it ain't necessarily so because these are actually different things it doesn't tell us what the best way to learn it is but it gives us a reason why they're not necessarily the same why it's not necessarily because this was the big thing at the start of the 20th century you had um progressive educators um who would say um oh well why can't learning be more natural why can't school learning learning to do maths or reading about why can it be more like the the sorts of uh, learning that happens naturally when kids play with toys and well this is why it's not necessarily the same this provides explanation for why these things might be might be different but if you do want to find out what the most effective forms of instruction are you still have to do those experiments because Geary's theory doesn't tell you that um, that's
0: a separate issue. Got it and I mean there's there's so much to dig into here Greg but I guess before we go any further we should kind of define this direct or explicit instruction and in particular well there's two things I really want to ask firstly I'm assuming it's different from simply just lecturing to students and secondly I think you've kind of hinted there that there's there's not just one form of direct or explicit instruction so I wonder if you could just pick up on on those two points if that's all right
1: okay so direct instruction is a is a term that i try to avoid um <laughs> because uh there's a guy barack Rosenschein's written a paper on five meanings for the term direct instruction <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, one of them is any kind of generic teacher-led instruction which could be effective in be. Right. Uh, one is uh, a term used to uh describe uh, a teaching style in a pejorative sense so um straight lecturing Didactic, authoritarian—you know—all those sorts of things that people level at it. Um, another form, another meaning of the term direct instruction, is a a a, a kind of instruction that sees its origins in the process-product research of the 50s, uh, 60s, and 70s, which Rosenchain was very involved in, and that's about that's correlational research. So that's about going into classrooms observing teachers trying to systematically record their behaviors and then look at the growth in the students' abilities with different teachers and then trying to associate teacher behaviors with uh the greatest student academic growth and that produces a, uh, a a body of research known as teacher effectiveness research and a lot of that is about um this this other meaning of direct instruction so uh, objectives are clear Explanations are clear. Teacher asks lots of questions. Uh, teacher guides practice initially, all that sort of stuff. There's a really good paper uh, called Principles of Instruction, which uh, Rosatine wrote for American Educator, which is going to be um, one of my uh, websites. I'm going to mention later. But um, he's, he, he writes this uh, paper, which we use a lot at my school because it, uh, it illustrates these these steps that come from the teacher effectiveness research. There is another meaning of direct instruction, <laughs> uh, which is often conventionally, um, you you capitalise the first letter. So it's capital D, direct, capital I, instruction. And that is related to the style programmes developed by Zig Engelman and Wes Becker and various other people um, in the late 60s, early 70s, which is most famous through the unfortunately named project follow-through <laughs> yes. uh which was uh, a, an experiment in uh, basically it was a horse race so different researchers um got to try their um approach to early years education and the effects were compared and it's not a perfect experiment it's very big it's very messy and some people therefore claim it shows nothing at all um but it does seem to sh- indicate that um direct instruction this die star program was the most effective die star still exists you can still get these programs University of Oregon is a big center for it but they're um, they're marked out by the fact that the lessons are actually scripted so the teachers essentially read from a script um, I think Engelman said that he didn't initially intend to do that but the teachers just took the lessons off in so many different directions that he f- that he found that he had to um, so that's not to everyone's taste at all but that That doesn't mean that all meanings of direct instruction mean scripted lessons. That's just a particular um, example. Now, when I use the term, uh, I don't try not to use the term direct instruction. I talk about explicit instruction. And explicit instruction is this teacher effectiveness research-based direct instruction, which is highly interactive. It's not lecturing. Uh, It's questioning the kids all the time, making sure they're uh, paying attention, guiding practice, and all that sort of stuff. So that's what I tend to use. The other form of direct well explicit instruction as well uh can be in the form of um doesn't have to be a teacher talking so a worked example is a form of explicit instruction um so when you actually just give a kid a worked example to study rather than talk them through it that's a form of explicit instruction uh and also the the final meaning um Rosenstein's final meaning of direct instruction i'm aware i've given you six now but <laughs> the work example the work example one wasn't one of his so this is his fifth one uh is um the kind of instruction in strategies so strategy instruction so this is um when you uh, say for reading comprehension you teach kids reading comprehension strategies so to ask themselves questions as they're reading a text and all that sort of stuff um, that's very interesting in itself because um, explicit instruction in the strategy seems to be more effective than um, trying to get the kids to pick it up implicitly but there is also evidence that um, we possibly have taken that a bit too far in our teaching so kids gain a lot from a few uh, sessions on these reading comprehension strategies but they don't then gain much if you keep practicing it over and over and over again yet in some areas we seem to have built that into our System, so that's the one area of direct instruction which we've kind of gone for in a big way, um, but probably mistakenly so. Um, so those are all the different kinds of explicit instruction. God, direct flipping, that
0: geez, <laughs> flipping that. Right. Well, kind of. Move, moving, moving from that, then I wonder, Greg, because I'm I'm relatively new to this cognitive load theory, and as I say, I've been re- revising very hard late into the night to to, to make sure I'm <laughs> at some kind of level to talk about this. And there's a few of the effects um, that have kind of come out of the literature that I've just found particularly interesting. And I wonder if yep. I could just kind of chuck an effect at you. And you could kind yep. of just just describe it, and and in particular, if possible, relate it relate it to something you you might do it in a maths lesson, if possible. So
1: well, I, I can have a go. Um, sure. I'm not as familiar with all of them as you might hope, so I'll, I'll do my best.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Well, the first first one is the, the worked example effect. What, what what's that about? So uh, the main
1: studies on that, this is what started uh, John Sweller oh. off. So uh, he would so he ran. Uh, the idea is that um, a lot of people uh, in the uh, in the early 80 s when he initially did this work were focused on problem solving problem solving is really yes. important uh, we're can do lots of problem solving kids will learn how to solve problems well for a start there's no uh, generic skill of problem solving beyond means and analysis John sweller would say and we've all got that anyway that's one of these biologically primary things that we learn to do so to solve different math problems you need different knowledge you, you can't just get good at problem solving. You, you need the, the knowledge. Um, you've, you've got means-end analysis, but you need separate stuff. So uh, he ran a series of experiments where um, so half the students, so randomized trial, half the students would solve problems, half the students would study worked examples, uh, and then at the end they'd be tested on their ability to solve problems. And the students who studied the worked examples did a lot better than the students that solved the problems. Now, I don't find this hugely surprising uh but i suppose i'm a little bit way down the uh track with this now but at the time this was quite surprising because people assumed that solving problems would develop this generic problem solving capacity that would make you better at solving problems uh but it didn't quite work like that so that's the worked example effect and that's what i'm trying to harness with the worked examples i do in class and the
0: example problem pairs I think you're right because again, this uh, being someone who's completely new to cognitive load theory, this this was the first thing that really struck me that I thought flipping, heck, um, yeah, that is that is quite profound. That and and also the the idea that problem solving isn't transferable to all the contexts that that really fascinated me. The, the fact that um, and I think what well, one of the papers I read gave the example that you you can you can get a child who can perfectly solve some problem with uh i don't know working out the cost to to pave a driveway or something like that the context changes slightly and all of a sudden they're working out how many sheep can be in a pen or something it's the the maths behind it the, the deep structure of the problem is the same but they can't transfer those those skills is 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 that a different effect or is, is that is that related that, to this
1: that's different so uh that's the fact that uh, now Willingham probably talks Um, most accessibly about this Dan Willingham yes that's the idea that when we learn something what we learn tends to be locked to the context in which we learned it so we tend to think that all these surface features are important so the classic example um, is the dictator uh, experiment so uh, I forget the name of the researchers which is really bad we'll have to put that (laughs) up later but so um, basically you've got um, a dictator who's in a castle and you want to get rid of him because he's bad Um, And you've got an army that can defeat him. But uh, all the roads that lead to the castle are mined. And the mines are triggered to go off if a certain number of people uh, go over the mines. So uh, what's the solution? Well, what you do is you send some soldiers along one route, some along another route, some along another route, and so on. And that's the way you can defeat the dictator. So you give people this problem to solve, and they have a go, and they try and solve it. And then you give them a problem where you've got uh, a cancer tumor in a brain. And uh, you're told you've got this uh, radiation beam that will kill the tumour, but it'll also kill the tissue that it goes through. So that's a problem because it's not good. So what do you do? And the solution is, in in terms of its deep structure, is exactly the same. You you have lots of smaller beams that come at different directions but all meet at the tumour and destroy the tumour, but none of them uh, are powerful enough to kill the brain tissue that they go through. Now, surprisingly... Because the way I've just explained it, and I've told you that the two are analogous, so uh, you can see that, I assume. But when people are given the first problem to solve, and then the second problem to solve, they often couldn't transfer the solution to the first problem to the second problem. They did a bit better if they were told that the second problem was like the first problem. But they didn't necessarily see it. Because what they've got, they've associated this solution with dictators and bridges and mines and soldiers, and, and they can't necessarily filter what's important, the principle, from these surface features and you see this uh with so you've got the chi experiment chi she she did a series of experiments margaret margaret chi did a series of experiments uh with uh physics undergraduates so well a physics undergraduates and ph- physics phd students so the physics undergraduates were um novices and the physics phd students were experts and she basically gave them a whole load of physics problems to categorize and the um, novices uh categorize them according to their their surface features so they put all the ones that involved slopes in a pile together and all the ones that involved springs in a pile together the uh phd students the experts they categorize the problems according to the physics principles you needed to solve them so this is a clear difference between experts and and novices in a field how do you get from one to the other Can you teach general problem-solving skills? We don't think so. I mean, I always tell my physics students to draw a diagram. I mean, I'm sure some of those little heuristics work, but generally speaking, I don't think you can. And I think all you can do is intentionally teach them to transfer um, the principles. So you have to give them an example, then you have to give them an example in a different context and show that it's the same, point out the deep structure, or maybe put two examples next to each other and show why the deep structure of the two is the same and then give them some to do and then give them one that's in a bit slightly different context it's the thing is it's hard work and it takes a long time um and if there was a shortcut that would be great but there probably
0: isn't got it fantastic well well the next effect i want to chuck at you greg the generation effects this this one interested me can you can you just talk a little bit about that if that's okay so the generation effect isn't really a cognitive load theory effect, but it, it predicts
1: slightly different things to cognitive load theory. So that's why it's interesting. So um, imagine, um, I'm, imagine you wanted to learn a whole load of capital cities. I can't yeah. imagine why you would. but So I say to you, what's the capital of Australia? And you go, Sydney, because that's what a lot of people say. I say, no, no, it's Canberra. Now, if I do that, you're more likely to remember the capital of Australia than if I just tell you the capital of Australia is Canberra. That's right. the generation effect. So by so there's all sorts of proposed mechanisms. It sort of it primes your schemas or whatever. Um, but uh, that, that works, and it's been demonstrated in lots of ways, in lots of different contexts. Um, and that seems to conflict with this worked example um, effect, because you think, well, if that's true, if generating a yes. solution is better than um than just being told the solution then surely generating a solution to a a problem is better than studying a work example um this can be resolved i think although you do have to um well you you have to accept a premise um known as element interactivity so well i don't think you do actually but you could you could just accept that the one is more complex the generation effect has been demonstrated for very simple things like remembering lists of words mm. random words remembering capital cities uh, random strings of letters that's a much more basic uh, function than um trying to solve a uh, a algebra problem say mm-hmm. so it could be the case that um it doesn't engage enough of your working memory to just be told the capital of australia is canberra so by getting you to have a go at Guessing it first that actually invests more cognitive resources in the answer than simply just being told what it is. However, that's because it's it's a very low complexity yes. task. But when it comes to solving an algebra problem, there it could very easily overwhelm your working memory. You could rapidly run out of uh, capacity. So in that case, uh, you want to reduce uh, the loads a-, a little so that you can make it easier to um, process and. Uh, John Sweller uses the idea of element interactivity there. So things are complex if the elements interact. Um, to give an example, imagine learning the uh, names of the elements in the periodic table. It would be, you know, they're sciencey sounding words, so they're difficult and all that. But they don't interact in any way. You, your knowledge of the name of calcium does not affect your knowledge of the name of selenium. They, they don't, yes. They're not interacting. You can learn them all independently, you can learn one at a time, whatever. But to solve an algebra problem, as soon as you move that A or that X, that has implications for all the other things uh, in the expression. So they interact. So uh, that makes it much more complex in terms of what you've got to process. So that's why uh, the complexity is higher. There's more things you've got to, you haven't just got to hold the terms in your brain, like you have with the names of the elements. You've got to actually hold their interactions in your brain as well. And so that's why there's a difference in the level of complexity.
0: God, it' fantastic. Flip, flipping. I get me my next favourite effect that I wanted to to throw at you is is this redundancy effect because I, I think I got a little bit confused by this one. And would you would you mind just talking about the redundancy effect a little bit? I think this has a lot of implications for
1: teachers, um, and it's very counterintuitive and it's very hard to uh, get your head around. Yes. A- and actually, probably the better explanation of this is not necessarily um, cognitive load theory, but Uh, It's it's almost the same effect, almost described in the same way in Mayer's Cognitive Theory of Multimedia Presentations. I think that's what it's called, Cognitive Theory of Multimedia Learning or presentations or something. Um, Basically, so you've got to, say you put your PowerPoint on and you've got a screen that's full of text. Um, What you shouldn't do is read out the text because uh, what you're going to do, if the kids are reading the text, they're generating an inner voice so reading has to rely on these uh, more ancient processes so you, you you've got so your working memory according to the cognitive th- theory of multimedia learning your working memory has got two components visual and auditory and when you're reading it actually occupies both because the information comes in visually that you process it and then you turn it into a sort of audio track inside your head which you then have to process in your um auditory bit of your working memory. So it's quite intensive. So the kids are all doing that, reading this thing on the slide. And then you are wittering on over the top of it. (laughs) uh, reading either reading out the slide or talking about the slide. Yes. Which they they can't possibly process you talking about the slide. They might be able to slow themselves down to read it at the same rate that you're reading now, but again it's not really necessary. You you should either have an image on the slide and just say the thing. Yes, because then the, the the kids can actually process an image and listen at the same time because they've got these two bits in their working memory, the visual yes. and the auditory. So they can hear, listen to you and process an image at the same time. So you can you could avoid slides of text on them and just say the stuff. Or But if you're going to have slides of text on, then um, you shouldn't really sort of read it out. Or The other thing you can do is you can separate it in time. So you can give them time to read the slide and then and give them sufficient time, like more time than you would need to read the slide, and then you can start talking about it. But what you shouldn't do is this thing that every presenter does, every presentation I've ever (laughs) been at, where they put information on the slide and then start whittering on about it before you've read it.
0: That's very yeah. I've done. I'm guilty of that that myself. Um, yep. And <laughs> what, I am. What, what about this the redundancy effect when it when it comes to kind of multiple representations of, of a concept? Because this is where I, I think I got a bit muddled up. Where um, uh, and kind of a, an example would be um, like you. I don't know. Is, is this good practice to to kind of de- a problems described in text, whether it be an angle problem or something like that. And then there's um, a related diagram um, that goes alongside it. So you've got like the text being one element and then the visual kind of um, aid of the diagram being another. Is that is that good practice? Does is that does that confuse learners or it, as long as the, the representations are related? Is it OK? Now, I
1: don't think that this is this has been directly uh, um, investigated through experiments I don't think, I might be wrong here uh, there's something very similar about diagrams which I'll talk about in a minute if you want but um, again you can get away with things if you separate them in time so if you put up the worded problem you get them to read the word in problem and then maybe have a bit of a discussion about the worded problem then you put up the diagram and their attention is on the diagram then um, that should be fine because mm-hmm. you, you're only doing one thing at a time you can, in principle, uh, evaluate a diagram while listening to it. So you could read out the word problem while the kids are inspecting the diagram. Right. Uh, uh, I suppose, uh, provided the diagram doesn't have things on that they have to read, because like labels and stuff, because then they're going to be reading those while you're reading, and then you get this redundant or interference uh, essentially between the two kinds of reading. Um, so I would just it's a classic thing like if you get a word problem you would draw a diagram but i would just separate them in time so i'd i'd have the word problem and you don't necessarily have to have them on different screens i don't think and this is me now talking as a practitioner not as i'm not sure cognitive load theory can address this problem exactly because i'm not sure they've done the experiment but you just draw their attention to one bit and then you draw their attention to the other bit The, the reason i say this what has been researched is this idea of diagrams so when they found the worked example effect in algebra, they went on immediately and said, right, let's try and do it with um, physics. But the physics worked examples didn't seem to have the same effect at all. And one of the problems was the diagrams in the physics worked examples had things like there's a a diagram and then it was labelled like A, B, C, D. And then you had to look up in a key what A, B, C and D were. And so you had to split your attention between the diagram and the key all the time, looking backwards and forwards. And this um, generates cognitive load. And this, well, this is the theory, generates cognitive load and was uh, overloaded overloaded you. So this was a problem, and this is why the worked examples in physics didn't work in the same way as the worked examples in um, algebra. But they managed to get around it and get the worked example effect if instead of going A, B, C, D in the diagram, they just put the word next to the thing on the diagram. So instead yes. of A... Being, um, you know a thermometer they just wrote thermometer over the thermometer on the diagram because then you haven't got to split your attention between the key and and the diagram and then they got the worked example effect again so that's an important principle i think for teachers to know i don't know many teachers do this it's quite old-fashioned and formal to label diagrams a b c d and then have a key but if any teachers are doing it they should maybe reconsider on the basis of that research
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely, and as I say, they're just they're my kind of key takeaway from this is just because I've always thought that multiple representations were a good thing because it kind of gives, just intuitively, it gives students different opportunities to to understand the concept. Maybe they'll get it from. The, the word problem, maybe they'll get it from the diagram, maybe they'll get it from the me kind of wittering over the top and so on. But the kind of thing I took away from this is, as, as you say, they need to be spaced out. If they're presented all at the same time, then it generates this cognitive load that prevents the students understanding it. Is, is that about right?
1: Yeah, that's about right. And the other thing that a lot of people and, and you see this a lot, probably the biggest problem, apart from the redundancy effect in a lot of our instruction is extraneous load. So these are the pretty PowerPoints that animate or have little (laughs) gophers bobbing up and down in the corner and this sort of stuff, which draw attention and uh, use up cognitive resources. So instead of getting to the point of what the information that you want on the slide, there's all these other little bits going on that you can pay attention to. Now, this sounds like I'm uh, a bit of a killjoy saying, well, you can't have fun. But again, you can do whatever you like. If you separate it in time so you can have your slide with your bit of information on and then when that little instructional episode is over you can put your slide up with your gopher jumping up and down if you want because you've separated them in time what you can't have is the gopher jumping up and down at the side of the screen while you want the kids to pay attention to um some other feature of the slide
0: that's very interesting (laughs) and and just really i don't know if this is related to this or not but Um, If we take an example of something, again, just to go purely maths on this, if we take an example of something like um, the equation of a straight line graph, now um, that could be represented in in several ways. So uh, I would need students to be able to generate, if we say something like y equals 2x plus 1 or something, I would need students to be able to, Understand that that could be represented in a table of values or table of coordinates with X and Y, when X is 1, Y is whatever, 3 or whatever and so on. I'd need them to know that that could be represented by the the diagram of a straight line graph. I might also want them to relate that to um, the related nth term sequence, so they could relate sequences to, to, to graphs as well. And... Also, if they're doing sequences, then I might want them to relate that to the um, kind of visual representation of the sequence. So not just knowing the nth term, but being able to do it as a geometric pattern and so on. And I want them to get all those kind of connections together. Now, in my head, that again, just intuitively, that is kind of good practice because they're making all the connections between sequences and straight line graphs and algebra and and visual representations. For me, uh, again, just intuitively, that suggests that they're going to understand it more. But does does this redundancy effect or or anything else from cognitive load does that imply that I should literally just completely separate these these four representations? And if that is the case, do do I ever bring them back together again, or do I only do that when they've kind of become experts in all four things separately? If that makes sense.
1: Uh, well, I can't answer that definitively. For for a start, personally. I'd get rid of the sequences representation because I don't think they add much. But that's a, that's a different point, that's a, <laughs> a side point. Sure. Um, I would. Yeah. I mean, the, the key principle is to break things down and to break things down into smaller bits than you think you need to. So, yes. again, we're going outside of cognitive load theory here, but I'm going back to this idea of the curse of knowledge. you know things you know the representations you know how they relate to each other so it's hard for you to imagine that kids don't so that's why you always have to break things down into smaller things than you imagine you have to because you're suffering from a cognitive bias break them down deal with them separately and then bring them together um when i can't really say i mean that would depend on the kids Uh, it would depend on how many times they've gone through this instructional sequence before because generally speaking uh, in most schools they won't do this once. They'll do it a few times. Yes. If you're doing revision at the end of a unit or or at the start of another unit, you might be able to go from talking about the line, talking about the graph, to the whole, all the three things together on the same page fairly quickly. But if you're doing it initially, you might want to separate the man in time a little bit. Certainly at any point in time, you only want to be drawing their attention to one. Yes. And then the other. And then maybe the other. So... I can't give a hard and fast rule. I don't think cognitive load theory could say, but but breaking it down um, into little bits before trying to synthesize them. And again, I'd be a little bit empirical about it. I'd, I'd try and have systems in place where I could tell if kids were getting off the bus and if were, I was starting to lose them. And, you know... Sometimes that you can tell just by the looks on their faces that's important feedback, um and then I'd slow down and I'd go back to my initial representation, but you know eventually they'll all be on the screen together. I would have thought or on the board together or or how have you got it arranged um it It's like a lot of this is about timing, so I'm very much against inquiry based learning or project based learning because they're based in inquiry or they're based in projects, so we're expecting kids to learn things key principles through the inquiry through the project yes that doesn't mean i'm against kids doing inquiries or doing projects but they do them after they've been explicitly taught the knowledge and skills that they need to be successful in doing them if a kid has gone through an instructional sequence in maths i don't know i'm not totally convinced by this but it could be (laughs) that by the time you get to the end by doing something a little bit more open-ended a little bit more extended or a kid who's gone through the instructional sequence more rapidly than the rest of the class um then they they'll pick up these inferences these this by doing something a bit more open-ended they'll be able to transfer a little bit or in science maybe um they'll they'll learn some nuances of the experimental method by ha- but they've got to be taught all um yes the 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 relevant stuff first and in fact there's a really nice video by john hattie online about this where he he basically says you know inquiry's fine but it has to come at the end when they know all the the stuff so we're now applying it so we're just practicing applying it in different situations we're not learning it we've done that we're we're applying it to different situations and i think there's a lot to be said for that um but it's it, so it's not necessarily the task like uh, this is, like in quite doing uh, doing an investigation is good or doing an investigation is bad. It can be a bit like that, but it depends on where kids are in their journey and their development of that knowledge and skill. so can once they really you know have um, got strong concepts of a straight line equation, a straight line graph, um, I don't know what you have a concept of a term ta- I mean a table's a table in it, but once you've got those concepts, in your long-term memory, um, then, then the, the idea of processing them both simultaneously becomes more achievable because it, there's only the, the, the sort of uh, similarities that you then have to pay attention to in your working memory because the fundamentals are already there. So um, I think that's probably how it would play
0: out. Got it. Fantastic. And I'm certainly going to be uh, be digging more into kind of the role of inquiry and problem solving a little later on. But if it's all right, I just like to ask you two more little things that just struck me from from the literature I read on cognitive load theory. And the first one is and you mentioned it briefly just before this expertise reversal effect. And in particular, I'm interested in the um, implication of this in in developing students problem solving skills, if there is such a thing
1: well the there isn't uh so in in a general sense but there would be within a particular domain so if you're doing a particular kind of probability problem uh then eventually you want to be able to apply those principles to any kind of context where those principles might be uh, uh, the way to solve the problem so uh and this is the key thing so if you give a bunch of novices um probability problems to solve well uh, you know and I know they're probably going to get them wrong because probably this is probably the worst topic to pick because it's so <laughs> yes. counterintuitive. But um, you give them worked examples to solve, they'll learn much more from the worked examples than solving problems. Okay, so we've got that. That's the worked example effect. But now we get students, maybe they're undergraduates or people that have solved a lot of probability problems in the past. They're familiar with these. They don't need to learn the process. They don't need to learn the procedure. They know that, you know, um, the probability of A given B is probability of a and set b over the probability of b you know they know this stuff and they can uh, they can crunch it through and they can work it all out so now they're not going to learn much from solving worked examples because the worked examples are redundant because they're just teaching them how to do the thing that they already know how to do so they're going to learn more from just solving a load of problems because now they're going to have to apply it to a range of different situations and they're going to build up this episodic knowledge so again i've gone outside cognitive load theory slightly here but episodic knowledge is uh basically your memories of solving problems in the past and it's how most problems are solved when you call for a plumber and they come and look at your uh, toilet they don't start working all all out from the first principles that they learned at a plumbing college they the first thing they think is oh this is similar to a a toilet that i had to fix last week or this is similar to so what they're doing there to solve the problem they're relying on episodic knowledge they're relying on a memory of solving a similar problem they probably can't say, I did it on this date or, and I was um, having a cup of tea at the time. They they can't necessarily link it to other things, that they, but they've got this knowledge, they've got this memory of solving this similar problem. So if you give experts, um, and this is, I say, a personal take slightly on the expertise reversal effect, but if you give experts problems to solve, Um, they're they're learning about um, the fact that they can solve this in different contexts there may be uh, an option of solution methods that that they've got to choose from so they're learning when this solution method is better than that solution method they're building up their episodic knowledge so if they come across a similar problem in the future they're more likely to relate it back to this one that they're solving so the 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 students who are more expert the students who already have all the steps and know all the moves um, are going to learn then more from Solving problems. And this is the expertise reversal effect. Uh, It's been demonstrated quite a number of times now uh, where relative novices learn more by worked examples. Relative experts will learn
0: more by solving problems. Got it. That's a fantastic summary um, of that one. And again, I think we're, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into problem solving, um, a little later, and we'll, we'll come back to the expertise reversal effect. But my final one, Greg, and I, again, I I don't know if this is something um we've we've essentially covered before, but I just want to be um, explicit about this. One thing I was reading about was was the difference between worked examples and so-called completion tasks. Now it sounded. Would I be right in saying that when you're when you're introducing a new concept and when you describe your probability lesson, is yours more a completion task than a a worked example? Because you are because you are questioning the kids and asking them to fill in blanks or have I got Uh, that wrong? Possibly. There's a bit of dispute about what these
1: completion tasks do. So completion tasks is a worked example, but there are bits missing which you have to fill in. Yes. Um, Now, they are effective. um, But why? Why? you could argue that it forces you to pay attention. So, you know, the example problem pair that I do. So I present an example yes. and then the student has to solve. Well, they're mo- they're, 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 they've got a reason to study the example because they've got to solve a problem. So it's sort of focusing their attention on the worked example. Whereas if you just flashed up a worked example, uh, they might, you know, not really pay much attention. But they've got yes. to pay attention because they've got to do this thing. Um, it could be that completion problems work like that, that by having to fill in the missing steps, you're having to follow the argument of the worked example yes. uh it could be more constructivist than that that you're relating it to schemas and all that sort of stuff i don't really know but um the result is there that they are effective uh, i can't remember the exact references but um uh, it, it's up to you i suppose why you
0: think that's the case got it fantastic and just before we we move move on to some of the kind of practical implications and some of the counter arguments to to cognitive load theory in in the realms of mathematics just this may be an impossible question greg but i I wonder if if you were to summarize what would be kind of the key implications of cognitive load theory for teachers possibly particular particularly of mathematics but of any subject when planning and delivering lessons what, what would they be what are the kind of key takeaways from it
1: um well i could be well uh, your working memory is limited um and you need to bear that in mind and kids probably need more structure than you think they need uh one exercise i've asked people to do is to said, right now write down uh how you would solve this problem right and here's the steps that they write down uh, and I, I make them space up the steps out yes. and then i say right between each of the steps i want you to write an, a, an intermediate step um, because that gets people thinking about the things that they do unconsciously, the, the bits that they miss out. Because yes. often it's these bits that we miss out um, that are the bits that stop the kids from moving forward because they don't see the connection. They don't see how A flows to B. And so I would say break it break it down, break it down more than you, think you need to break it down, and maybe try some of those little things like uh what's the step in between these two steps that i ought to maybe pay attention to
0: got it fantastic right greg so we've we've got a brilliant outline there of, of the kind of basics behind cognitive flow theory i want to just look now on some of the implications so the first one is is the implications for exam preparation and what, what i'm interested in here is the in exams, and I assume it's the same in Australia, often we have um, multi-mark questions. So it may be a GCSE question and it's, it's five marks and it calls upon loads of different skills that the students um, have to kind of master and, and have to kind of pull together. And there's no doubt that if a novice approaches that, there's going to be, to use the, use the terminology, a severe cognitive load. Because there's just too, too much, too many things going on. Yeah. So I'm interested in... what's the best way to to prepare students to answer those kind of questions and especially because when when people are listening to this the gcses are are very much on the horizon we've got year 11s around the country who are probably struggling with those kind of questions what does cognitive load theory or or what 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 do you say is is the best way to to prepare kids to to cope with that
1: okay so cognitive load theory probably doesn't have much to say on this particular issue um because um it's actually if the kids don't have um this is slightly pessimistic here but if the kids haven't mastered the components then getting them to synthesize them in a more complex question is going to be really hard um one thing i would caution against simply throwing them at solving more problems that they can't solve uh, you know practicing papers um that they can't do is probably not going to be um effective we have we have to be clear here like there's a lot of and this isn't cognitive load theory but there's a lot of um uh consciousness now about things like space practice and retrieval practice um the the, the you know car retrieval uh, paper was quite popular um and there's there's a lot of talk on, you know a lot of teachers particularly on social media will know about these effects and they'll talk about space practice and all that sort of stuff but um these uh experiments involving space practice and and things like that often involve quite uh cognitively simple things um so m- remembering lists of names and, yes. and things like that so i would argue that um that's that's a really good technique once the kids have understood the stuff to to do space practice and retrieval practice which are the same thing sorry i'm just being redundant there um <laughs> is really good once the kids have understood the stuff in the experiments that tend to show this not all of them um, but a lot of them uh they understand the thing immediately like if i if i say right this is the capital of paris is the capital of france um berlin's the capital of germany and le- learn these list of capitals you you, you understand what, what you've got to learn so uh, or immediately so you then just retrieve it retrieve it retrieve it With the game we're in often the kids don't understand it so i, I actually think that um we have to we have to get to that point where they understand and, and can do and achieve some success before we can start utilizing things like uh, retrieval practice, because otherwise we're just retrieving um, confusion. And yes, you know, so um, so I'll tell you that a, a strategy to not use is to just give them loads of past exam hopes to do. Unfortunately, the only way of solving a complex problem that synthesizes lots of components is to master the components. And then when you master the components and um, do lots of look at lots of synth- synthesizing problems where you have to bring them together and practice loads of those and, you know, be taught examples of those and then have a go at doing those. And um, So at this stage, you know, in uh, February with the GCSEs in um, June, yeah, there's probably not a lot you can do to do that for the entire course and for all these synthesis problems. So I'd pick off a few. And I'd start to play the odds I'd say, well, what are the big wins? What are the things that we can really work on? What are the things that we can ensure we've mastered? Which of these synthesis problems do we think the kids have the components for? If you can pick off some easy wins um, and things where you do know the components, where you have mastered the components and you can then give some work to examples on synthesizing them and then they can practice those, or um, if there are some components that are relatively easy to teach. I mean, ultimately... We need to start the process earlier, yes. um, and we you know we need to go further down the line, and you've got to see, well, if they're at this point in year eleven and they're not at the point of synthesis because they don't haven't mastered the components, then we need to master the components earlier, uh, and then you need to review the curriculum in that way. But I'm afraid my message is is fairly consistent here. There, there are no shortcuts, no. there are no magic bullets to um, there are a few things you can do. You can sharpen up on exam technique. Um, and that that can get you a, a, a few extra points, but there's no there's no major ways of, of circumventing that problem.
0: And I guess just just a final final question on this particular thing: if you had a, a year 11 class who, um, in the old kind of language, C/D borderline, and in the new one, God knows, they level five or level six or what, four, level four or five or whatever, and they were really struggling on these kind of four five mark questions. Would your advice be to just focus on the actual kind of basic skills as opposed to do lots of these four and five mark questions because related to what you were saying about willing and and the kind of um, inability of people to transfer these problem solving skills between different contexts? Is it better to focus on the basics than expose them to lots of different um, these multi mark questions? It depends. You need to do an assessment.
1: You need to assess whether they have the basic skills that are required to solve the problem. So, take the problem, say, what skills do we need to solve this problem? Okay, so they need to be able to solve a linear equation in order to solve this problem. They need to be able to identify the gradient of an expression or something over um, a graph. So, let's test those skills in isolation. Do they have them? Yes, they do. Okay, if they do, then we need to work through the three, four mark question. As a worked example, we need to show them where they use these basic skills, and then we need to get them to practice lots and and gradually vary them. so start with them quite similar to the worked example yes. we give, and then gradually vary them. If we aren't the basic skills are not there, then we've got to teach the basic skills. No point
0: persisting with yes. the three four mark questions. Got it, fantastic. Um, next, I just want to move on to so just talk a little bit more about discovering inquiry based learning and and an argument that I see for it, that I think holds a bit of validity. And I, again, I was just, just reading this uh, on, a, on, a, on a blog post. And the, the author of the blog um, made the point that if you, um, for, isn't, it, it, isn't it the case that students will remember something more if they've discovered it? And the example they gave was this. Imagine you were teaching the um, area of a trapezium um, and you gave the students um, a, a load of trapeziums and a ruler and whatever and said, OK, measure your lengths. Can you come up with some for and you told them the areas? And so can you come up with some way of relating the lengths um, to the to the actual areas and hence them come up with the formula themselves? Would it not be the case that they would remember that formula far more than if you simply told them what the the formula for the area of a trapezium was? Now, what, what would what would your response to that be, Greg? Uh, well uh, i
1: don't know um, and <laughs> i'm not sure about the research on it I, I wouldn't simply tell them the formula for trapezium either right. i'd explain it uh, and i reckon i'd have good odds on them remembering my explanation more than something that they worked through discovery and i'll explain why yes um so discovery uh, as we've said sort of can just overload you in thinking about, you know, how to do it. So, for instance, you, you, you might fail to discover. So you've got the um, example of the times three plus 29 experiment where the no no one spotted the pattern. So yes. you might have a discovery fail. So they don't discover it, in which case you're going to have to tell them anyway. Yes. Um, when it works, uh, we have little evidence that it provides any bonus. So there's a really important paper by Clara Niggum where they were trying to teach... Kids, the um, controlling variables um, idea—the idea that in a science experiment, you've got to control your variables, you've got to make it a fair test—and uh, they had a pure discovery condition. Now, people immediately will get their backs up and say, "Well, no one uses pure discovery; everyone uses guided discovery." But bear with it, because I think this shows something important. They had a pure discovery condition, and they had a explicit instruction condition. So, they explicitly instructed some kids in this process and they got some kids to discover the process. Unsurprisingly, as I think most people would uh, agree, the the explicit instruction kids, more of them learnt the principle of uh, controlling variables than the impure discovery. I think most people are comfortable with that because as far as I can see, no one is promoting pure discovery. Everyone's promoting guided discovery or whatever. Um, But the the interesting bit of the experiment is what they did next. They then got these kids who had learnt the principle to evaluate science fair posters to see whether the experiments uh, outlined in the science fair posters um, were in line with the principle of controlling variables or not the kids who had learnt the principle through discovery so the, the few who had learned it um, so they didn't learn most of them didn't learn it but the few that had learned it the real superstars who figured it out themselves were no better at evaluating the science fair posters than the ones that had been taught it right. so what's the benefit here what what are we tr- what's the discovery why are we doing this like aren't they supposed to understand it better isn't it supposed to lead to like deeper learning or something which is you know better uh it i don't see that there's much evidence for that and we can trade anecdotes but like i remember um so i had to fix the toilet because uh the flush stopped working i didn't enjoy this much at all so i went to the <laughs> uh the hardware store the, uh, the one we have here our b&q is called bunnings so into right. bunnings and i bought a flush uh to replace a universal flush fits all toilets so i came home and instructions were literally three diagrams three diagrams that was it to fit fit this thing in this toilet <laughs> i didn't even realize at first that i had to take the cistern off so i thought i was going to get away without taking the cistern off but then after a bit of you know trial and error and figuring out and turning the diagram upside down and then looking at the toilet And eventually I I figured it out. I flooded the bathroom once because I didn't realize about the rubber seal. And (laughs) and then once I had actually managed to fit this flush, I spent about the next two weeks worrying that the bathroom was going to flood again because I wasn't sure I'd done it right. Yes. And if you asked me to do another one, I I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly how I did it. And I wouldn't be confident to do it. Um, A few weeks later, I bought myself a kegerator, which is the most marvelous thing. It's like a fridge. And you put these things called Cornelius kegs in it, which are used for they were designed for di- dispensing like um, fizzy drinks. But what you do, if you're a home brewer like me, is you put your beer in them, and then out the top of this fridge are these taps, and then you can dispense your nice cold beer because it's nice. always hot in Australia. You see? Nice, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so uh, you put. So, But I was dreading this, because I'd just had this experience with the toilet, and uh, I was thinking, oh, this is just going to be a nightmare. It's going to be like the toilet, only 10 times worse. Sure. So I got this kegerator. I was really excited, but I was also quite depressed about the thought of putting it together, because it was a kit, you know. Um, and I didn't get any instructions this time, but I got a video, a YouTube video to look at. And I put the YouTube video on, and there was this bloke who was explaining how to put the kegerator together, and he's probably one of the best teachers I've ever seen. Um, he was very calm. And very assured, so I trusted him immediately that he knew what he was doing, and he put this thing together in front of me on the screen, and not only did he explain what you had to do, but he, to, he also explained, which you never get from diagrams, uh, why you shouldn't do certain things, non-examples. Right. So for instance, one of the things you, you get these tubes that connect the keg to the tap, and they're really long. And this bloke on the YouTube said, and what a lot of people do is they think that they're unnecessarily long. And maybe they're there so in case you want to mount your taps somewhere else. And so they cut them down. But the problem is, if you cut these tubes down, they're they're designed to prov- to provide resistance to the flow of the beer. So the length has been calculated to provide a, a particular resistance to the flow of beer. So if you cut them down and shorten them, when you turn your tap, all your beer is going to come out uh, frothy. Now that made perfect sense to me when he explained <laughs> it to me, but Prior to that, I would have probably cut these things down because they're really long. These tubes, and they sort of get away in in the way in the fridge. He said, "What you want to do is you want to get cable ties and you want to tie them up into little loops." So that's what I did, and my kegerator works beautifully. And it was (laughs) a dream to put together because someone who knew what he was on about and had done it before explained to me how to do it. Yeah. So now that's only anecdotal, but it's an anecdote that just makes you think. Well, this idea that feels really truthy—that surely it's better to work things out for yourself i'm not sure it is because we're humans have evolved to communicate and to teach each other things so and that's quite efficient so why
0: wouldn't we make use of that yeah okay i could be persuaded by that greg that's not the beer example may have done it for me there. i like that um just just three more things i'd just just like to ask you for i hand over to to you for your big three and the first is what what role if any do, do things like investigations and enrich problems and and i'm obsessed with the old coursework tasks that that i that was first first thing when i first started teaching border problem diagonal differences and so on like what role if any would would they have in your teaching greg um i probably don't use them that much um i don't
1: sort of object to them in principle but um uh, they've got to go somewhere um If I were to use them or if someone in my team were to use them, they would be uh, at the end of a sequence of instruction where I was certain or pretty certain that the kids had all the prerequisite skills to use them successfully. What I don't want them to do is faff about aimlessly and and not really know what's going on or or to do what the uh, students in the 329 experiment did, which is actually solve the problem but not really learn anything about the principles uh, in the process of solving the problem. So I'd make sure that there was lots of explicit instruction up front before they did that activity. Um, Yep, so that's how i do it.
0: Got it. Fantastic. And I guess, well, sort of related to that is a big thing I'm... uh, again i've been banging on about this for years but what's your view on the use of kind of real life maths in the maths classroom trying to relate topics to concepts that students can relate to if you will
1: so in so we've got this maths which is this beautiful thing that we all love it's so elegant it's calculus is just amazing in what it yes. can do and the problems it can solve so but that's no good because that's uh because it's boring so what we've got to do is we've got to take all this beautiful maths. And we've got to relate it to really boring, mundane, everyday, commonplace things that might happen in your life or in your house or down the street uh, in order for you to be engaged in the maths. I think this idea is nonsense. Uh, I've read a book. There's a book by uh, David Perkins. It's quite an interesting book. I'd recommend it future wise. I don't agree with uh, a lot of his points, but it's really interesting to see the case argued. Yes. Um, But at one point he says... um, He's a, very much against quadratic equations for, for no, um, to my mind, <laughs> clear reason. Um, but he's very much against very much against it. But the sort of things that they should do, uh, kids should be doing instead, which is much more motivating for them and much more real-life and authentic, is to model the traffic flow in the local areas Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking, really? Really? I, I'm not... I reckon... Look, anything can be boring, anything can be interesting. What makes things interesting is if you know a bit about them already, you've got a way in, your foot's in the door, it's taught maybe with a bit of enthusiasm, I think that's important. You have a bit of self-efficacy, self-concept, so you believe that you can be successful. You believe that you can master this concept. You believe that you can solve this problem. Why do you believe you can solve this problem? Because you've solved problems in the past. You've got a good track record because you've got a good teacher who's taught you how to do
0: things got it now again you you've, you've sold me on that one um relate definitely related to this um is is the three act math structure that's um that Dan mayer amongst others is, is a big proponent of now for, for those of you who, who don't listeners who don't know this I suggest you listen to my my interview with, with Dan but but the basic structure of the lesson is essentially a story there's there's a hook at the start and um, where, where students are presented with a problem that they need to uh, figure out how to solve they then request information, go ahead and solve it, and then the kind of payoff at the end is they see the conclusion to this story. Now, when I was when I was doing my kind of research for the for this particular interview, I also read a lot of a lot of um, Dan Willingham's work, um, and what, what really struck me about that three act mass is that fits into his his advocacy the story structure to a lesson, and he, he makes a big point in uh, why students don't like school and um, his wonderful book about. Um, one good way of planning a lesson is also almost to follow a movie plot and, and have this kind of hook structure and, and so on, a story structure throughout the way through. And what's what's your take on that, in particular, the the, the idea of the three app maths and the story structure to lessons? Is that something you would you would buy into?
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, narrative is privileged. So uh, we think that the brain is set up to um, privilege stories over other kinds of ways of conveying information so that's good that's a really good thing about structure Um, however it it might be paying attention to that kind of finding from cognitive science but we also need to make sure that it pays attention to all the others so that it doesn't overload kids cognitively it doesn't uh, get them solving problems uh, and successfully but not learning anything from that because the process of solving the problem has used up all their cognitive capacity i haven't actually used uh, Myers uh, three act stuff I've, I know people that have used it or tried to use it in class and, and um, I don't know I mean I, I don't know it's not been trialed I don't think I don't think anyone's taught three act maths and then run it against standard instruction to see what the, the difference is so I, I can't really comment but what I would say is yes the, the fact that it follows a story structure big tick but we'd have to just check all the rest of it is uh, is um, in line with
0: cognitive science as well Got it. Fantastic. And, and one last question for me, Greg, and then I'm going to hand over to you. Is what I've started asking my podcast guests, and I'm building up quite a collection of these, is just kind of books um, that you would recommend um, teachers to read. And this might be experienced teachers, it might be uh, young teachers in a, uh, or inexperienced teachers in a teacher training program, and so on. Is there any particular books that you would direct uh, people to? And I'll add these to the collection alongside Dylan William and Tom Bennett's recommendations and so on. Uh, yes, well, I thought I'd choose something that probably doesn't get as much of a push as
1: it should do um, because uh, there are lots of books I could recommend here. I mean, there's actually a really good book just published by um, Nick Rose and uh, David Dydale, uh, What Every Teacher Needs to Know About Psychology, and it summarizes um, the, the subject really well. But I haven't gone for that. I've oh. gone for Ch- Gene Chaw um, and the Academic Achievement Challenge, and I think that was written about the year 2000. And it's a really good book, uh, and it's all about um, the fact that um, the same findings have been coming up in uh, the research for many, many years, but for some reason, as a community of educators, we haven't taken them on. And it goes through a lot of these issues. It prefaces many of the arguments that we've uh, discussed today um, at a time perhaps when um, it was written where these weren't as, uh, uh, as current as they are now. So I, it's a really good book, well-written, easy read. Uh, and i'd strongly recommend it gene tool the academic achievement challenge and,
0: and how do you spell the surname sorry please greg C H A W L. perfect thank you and there'll be a link to that um as with all the books on the on the show notes page that's fantastic um well greg i've 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 talked far too much here so it's time for me to hand over to you uh, for your big three so and um, what three websites blog posts or however, however you want to ter- interpret it would you direct listeners towards and as ever these will be linked to on the show notes
1: OK, so the first one is American Educator. So uh, the American Federation of Teachers is a U.S. Uh, teaching union and they produce an absolutely superb uh, periodical American Educator. It's uh, quarterly um, and they have um, excellent writers. The The articles are well referenced. So, so they're not peer reviewed journal articles. They're written for the um average reader for a teacher to read to understand but they're also very thorough so you can always track through and you can see uh, the references and you can go and look at those papers if you want to um it's a really great resource some excellent writers over the years Dan Willingham's written a lot Edie Hirsch has written a lot for them uh, Daisy Christodoulou's in there Tom Bennett's in there um you know some articles are better than others but it's a really good
0: resource fantastic that sounds brilliant and what about number two um, that would
1: be educationechochamber.wordpress.com. So that's a uh, a blog site uh, set up by um, the uh, tweeter old Andrew, and uh, what it does is it, it it reblogs, so it creates a link to lots of different um, blogs by teachers. So it's a sort of meta blog. So you can go on and I dip in occasionally and you see all sorts of interesting things written by teachers about their practice or about research or about things that are concerning them about the politics of education and so on. So it's a really good uh, website to just dip in and out of or to follow on Twitter.
0: Perfect, excellent. And
1: finally, uh, what's your third choice? So my third is the ResearchEd website. So that's Um, researched.org.uk. In the process, I think of migrating from uh, what works sorry working out what works um website um the reason i've selected it uh is um I, they're on the working out what works website at the moment but i think they're moving over to the research ed website research ed if you don't know is a is a, is a global phenomenon now it's set up by teachers for teachers um their conferences tom bennett um leads it has run it uh, for a number of years now um and uh, speakers come and they talk about all sorts of Uh, issues relating research and education and through the website you can get also you can get lots of really interesting resources articles that are written by people presentations that they give at these conferences and videos of people speaking it's a really um, good resource
0: that's wonderful selection, those, Greg. Um, well, just just one thing left for me to do, and that's to thank you. And um, firstly, for your, for your time and giving up your time to to speak to us, I, I I found it fascinating, and I know listeners will. But also, just on a wider point, just just thank you for your blog because it it scares me a little bit that I've got so far through my career just assuming things. Are, are right things that i've been told are true whether that's inquiry whether that's um investigations and um, even things like behavior that, that we spoke about that you can't improve on your behavior management and so on and it's it scares me i'm a little bit ashamed to say that i've only now started questioning that kind of stuff and, and reading around it and it's blogs like yours that that really open up the eyes of, of busy teachers to to the kind of very best research and distill it and, and point us in the right direction and so on so thank you so much for creating that that wonderful wonderful resource and once again greg just thanks so much for your time
1: cheers thank you very kind
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with Greg Ashman. I really hope you enjoyed that one. Now I'll tell you what, just make sure you sat comfortable for this takeaway, because this, this may well be the longest from any of the podcasts that I've done, and that's purely because it's just given me so much food for thought. And not just in my conversation with Greg, but also all the reading and preparation I did for the interview. Because as I said in my introduction, I'm gonna be entirely honest, I have not even heard of cognitive load theory. Um and I, I discovered it via a tweet from dylan william who described it as the most important thing for teachers to know and combined with dylan's recommendation to check out greg's blog it just opened up my eyes to this whole world of research that as i say i'm ashamed to to say that i've got through 12 years of teaching without knowing about so it's still early days for me I've, i've i've started to bring in um, just just a few practical things into my day-to-day lessons as a result of this and I just want to share a couple of, of these with, with you now. So <laughs> the first one is me me shutting up a bit and now I don't mean that in the sense that um, I, I teachers shouldn't be talking and the kids should be uh, discovering learning and all that, if anything that's that's the opposite of what this interview has been about but what I, what I mean there is I have a tendency to talk when I really don't need to talk and a classic thing I do, I do this all the flipping time is I will hand out a worksheet and the kids will be busy starting to work out on a problem or something like that. I'll project a problem up on the board and I can't be quiet. I just start talking and I'll be saying things like keep an eye out for the second sentence or remember to highlight all the key information or what's the first thing we need to write down. And all that is, in the terminology of of this interview, just just increasing the, the, the cognitive load of the students. It's information that they need to process. Worse still, I mean, it's fairly, I thought it would be important information, but... Is fairly pointless, but worse still, it's in two different forms, right? I'm asking them to read something on the board and then I'm chatting away saying, Oh, watch out for this, highlight this. Oh god, it absolutely must be a flipping nightmare. It's a wonder one of them hasn't punched me for it, to be honest with you. So that's that's the most obvious takeaway. Once I hand something out or kids start working on a problem, I am shutting up. And the only time I'm talking is if a child calls me over and I go and sit with them and, and talk through because I am putting those kids off. And now I've got the kind of theoretical framework to Know just exactly how damaging that could be. And um, second one is is just to work harder on my explanations and my questions. As a Willingham um, wrote, and I, I've re- I would recommend his book Why Students Don't Learn, uh, don't enjoy school to everybody. And um, memory is the residue of thought. And and Dylan made this point as well. If students aren't thinking, they're not learning. So when I'm explaining things, and when I'm asking questions, the key to it has got to be, is it making my students think? If it is, then I'm doing a good job. If they can just be passive, and Greg picked up on, the, on, we've got to be careful with this, this distinction between passive and active. I don't mean them; uh, they need to be running around and all that kind of stuff. But if they're not engaged, if they're not attentive, then um, how do I know they're thinking? So I've got to really work hard on my explanations in making them clear but also making sure that the students are engaged during it and are ready to think and answer questions. And directly related to that, I think, is the use of walking, talking mocks. Now, I've discussed this on the podcast in the past, and some of you may have seen videos I've done on YouTube with me kind of talking through answers and so on. I'm really going to need to rethink this, and on a kind of bigger level, even just reviewing past papers in class, because is is that a passive experience for the students greg made the point i mean he, he wasn't um he, he hadn't he, he admitted he hadn't kind of seen walking talking marks in action so he didn't want to come firmly down and kind of criticizing it but he made the point that you know it's it's how do you know you're helping out all the students those students who are struggling are they getting a lot for it and and crucially, are you? forcing kids to think during it or are they just passively sat there kind of making notes and taking them down and I'm sure you're hitting some kids with them and as I say the walking talking marks I'm sure have been of great benefit to some of our students but I'm really gonna have to rethink the way we do them making them more interactive pausing and asking questions it's not enough just to have an expert demonstrating their their thought process if the kids aren't thinking at the same time the other thing I've got to think carefully about how I present different representations of information and Greg made the point about the timing being very important and don't don't give the kids something to read while she's speaking it and then they've got a diagram next to it. it's too much for them to take it by all means get them to read it. Then let's stop, then let's talk about it, and then let's show them a diagram. Let's break it up a little bit. So this idea that multiple representations are necessarily a good thing, I'm really starting to question now. There's a time and a place for them. Um, observations is something we, we touched upon there and Greg, Greg articulated something again that Dylan had said and something that I've been thinking about for a while now that you can't judge learning in a lesson observation you, you just can't Greg, Greg talks about how he judges his learning the next lesson based on how well they've done on the homework but even better three weeks later and that's something that, that Will Emily talked about when we talked about memory and recall and and kind of distinguishing between memory and mimicry and actual tr- true understanding. So I think lesson observations have to focus on the basics, the absolute basics. And Greg said, go in there with an agenda. Are you looking at books? Are you looking at? Um, group work. I what what are you actually a presentation in books? What are you actually looking at? Behaviour, something that you can actually judge, not something vague like learning that is just impossible to judge in that single lesson. Next one, this is a flipping biggie. Think carefully about when and how I use rich tasks. Now, anyone who's heard me speak, anyone who's been taught by me, knows I flipping love a rich task. I've got a whole section on my website about them. I've got to think carefully about when and how I use these. I I, I used to think, and part of me still clings to this, that I can teach kids things through the use of these rich tasks and through the use of these problems and so on. And the kids seem to enjoy them, but are they learning from them? Or am I best using these once kids have mastered all the basics and rich tasks are a way to either introduce the kids to these in a different context or start to pull skills together, crucially, that they're already comfortable with? I'm going to have to really think this through and I don't want to dismiss it out of hand because I'm going to give a little shout out to Andrew Blair here. Andrew Blair from Inquiry Maths, one of my favourite websites. It still is one of my favourite websites. Um, I'm hoping to get Andrew um, on the show and not to defend his corner. He doesn't need to do that. But just to talk through how he uses inquiry, why he likes inquiry, uh, teaching through it and, and the way he does it. Because again, it's, it's like these things There's not just one way of doing um, explicit instruction or direct instruction, as Greg said. There's not just one way of running inquiry mathematics. So hopefully, hopefully, Andrew, if you're listening to this, please come on the show. I want to talk about running these inquiries. I still think they've got a place. I still think they've got a massive place and then I'm, I'm going to shut up soon I promise if anyone's still listening and um, then it made me think about purposeful practice now it again if anyone's heard me talk in the last three months it's me obsession at the moment purposeful practice the idea that the vast majority of things we teach our students are not new. They've already got a preconception of them going in, whether it be adding fractions. They've been adding fractions since year four or year five. They've been doing it for seven years. So when you introduce it to them in year 10, it can't be as if this is a brand new concept. They've already got a preconception about it. So you can't probably introduce it from the basics as if you would, as if it was a brand new lesson. So I'm a massive fan of purposeful practice. Getting kids to do that practice, worked examples, then doing loads themselves but with a greater purpose. Now, Don Stewart is a master of this, absolute master, but there are a load out there where kids are getting practice of these basic skills, but it's leading to something, whether it's leading to them discovering connections, algebraic connections, geometric connections, making representations and so on. But here's the key. And this is what my talk with Greg and the reading I've done has made me realize. The goal of that purposeful practice can't be for kids to make that connection it can't be that the goal has to be for them to get the practice of the key skills the connections that the kids make on a deeper level are a byproduct of that they've got to be almost like a bonus you give giving purposeful practice to target kit to target all your kids to make sure they've mastered the skills and then some of your students who've mastered them will then start to make that connection it's like the example uh, greg gave about the times in by three and i think it was um, subtracting 29 i might have got that the wrong way around but i mean what is your goal of that if your goal of that is for kids to problem solve and to make the connections it hasn't happened because they've been so bogged down in the times in my three and adding 29. so with purposeful practice the idea is you give the kids things to practice 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 until they get so good that there's room i don't know if i'm using the right terminology here but there's room in their working memory it's not so bogged down with the just the day-to-day intricacies of doing the mathematical operations that they've space in their working memory to start making these connections, start making these representations. So if anything, I'm even more sure that purposeful practice is the way forward, but that's something, as I say, I need to develop a bit further. And in general, in general, what this has taught me, and as I say, I'm a novice when it comes to this education research, is it's taught me to read and question things more. Things that I was taught when I was training as a teacher, things that I've heard people say, I've got to ask, where do they come from? What's the research say about them? What's the justification of doing it? And look, if if, if like me, you want to dip your toe into this, I I could not recommend Daisy uh, Christadolu's first book, Seven Myths About Education, higher. It is flipping mind-blowing. I love it. I'm rereading it for the second time now. As I absolutely love it. And just... Just for you to start questioning practice and, and improving in intangible practical practical ways, I think it's amazing. Anyway, flipping out, that that was some that was some takeaway. Probably longer than the interview itself. Um, Greg, um, I took up far too much of his time with the interview. He's very kind and gracious to give me so much time. So we didn't have time to to do a podcast puzzle. So I'm afraid if you want to listen to one, you stuck with me. But I promise it's a good one, and there's even a link to the lesson that Greg was talking about. So if you fancy hanging around after this little musical interlude, I shall return with a podcast puzzle. Now, as if you haven't heard enough from me already in this podcast, I have returned with the podcast puzzle. Now, this problem is taken from my website, uh, the brand new puzzle section of my website. If you go to mrbartonmaths.com forward slash puzzles, you'll find it there. And here I collect, well, basically my favourite maths kind of puzzles and problems and the odd brain teaser that I've, I've used over the years. And this one um, is a probability puzzle. And I thought I'd choose that one seen as, firstly, it's related to the lesson that Greg was talking us through earlier in the interview. And secondly, and more importantly, I in love probability. So this one is called the wedding ring and it goes something like this. In certain parts of rural Russia, a would-be bride would gather six long pieces of straw or grass and grasp them in her hand. She would then randomly tie pairs of knots on the top and the bottom. Since there are six blades of grass sticking out above and below the hand, she will tie three knots on the top and three knots on the bottom. The story goes that if she formed one big ring, she would get married soon. The question is, what is the probability that she will get married? So we have reached the end of another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast. All that remains for me to do is to once again thank my very special guest, Greg Ashman. And also to thank podcastthemes.com for providing the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. As I always say at this stage, if you do have a spare moment just to give us a good review on iTunes, I'd really like it. Um, And just a massive thank you for listening to to these shows. I really hope you're finding them as useful as I am. I've got some absolutely cracking guests lined up for the future. So you take care of yourselves. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you in the near future.